Are you ready to ride? The four horsemen return. It's Wednesday night. It's vibrant. The gang is all here. I see a lot of great names in the chat already piling in. Invite your friends, especially anybody that's interested in this type of subject. In particular, maybe anybody that's like afraid of the reality because of this subject. Because <laughs> we just came off the heels of an awesome conversation with Howdy McCoskey. This episode is not like some sort of a, you know, attack on Howdy in particular, but I am very much invested in the other viewpoint, which is that like maybe we're misinterpreting things by believing in the reality as a loose factory, super max prison, your body is a cage, that type of thing. <laughs> maybe it ain't as bad as all that. <laughs> and so what we have on deck tonight, we're going to be discussing basically what is what I call pop culture Gnosticism. And it's tough because that term itself, not gnosis, it means, you know, knowing or science. And I personally do not have anything against knowing things or science or, you know, the concept of gnosis. However, I do think that it's inverted whenever we take scriptures that are astrotheology and try to make them into something literal and historical. Which is, you know, we're taking a swing at something that's been going on for many millennia. Like, as long as we have such a thing as history, the farther you go back, the more it's diluted with mythology and the more obvious it is as such. So, specifically, we're going to be talking about the Nag Hammadi creation text, if you will. Uh, We won't get into that directly right away. I've prepared a slideshow of some of my ideas regarding etymology and, you know, syncretism and this astrotheology thing. But the text we're looking at is called On the Origin of the World or the Untitled Text. And I think all four of us have read it. We've got the four horsemen here, Slick Dissident, Mario Garza, Elsie King. Everybody say hi to our excellent panel of brilliant gentlemen here. And I guess we'll just go around and... You know, start, we'll go clockwise from me, Gabriel, and we'll all take a turn, you know, introducing this topic from our perspective and maybe laying out some of the primary things that we want the audience to be already in the mindset of as we go in and talk about the subject. So, yeah, welcome, everybody. Right on, man. Yeah, this is an exciting topic. I feel like we've been kind of simmering this uh, on burners we didn't even know we had on the stovetop for a long time. It's uh, it's exciting to bring this forward. Uh, some of the perspective I want to really keep, uh, maybe set the frame up in the beginning with, is that, you know, uh, I learned recently that the Nagamati texts were uh, revealed publicly. They had been processed for a very long time before their public release, but their public release date corresponds within a week of the CIA. So we are talking about that incredible pressure point, that nexus point right there from 46, but particularly 47. And in the conspiracy culture, when you say the number 47, everybody's fireworks are going off in their heads. We know it's a sacred number. We know it was a very important year. We know about the aliens. We know about all the things 47. And that's the birthplace of what I think are uh, some of the most powerful corresponding events at the same time right there. 
Well said. Yeah, there's actually even more glaring stuff about the, the origin of these texts, but we'll get to that in the slideshow later. So, Lucas, I know that you've refreshed yourself on what we're here to discuss as well. Do you have I think you I think I already know what you're going to say in terms of how you interpret this and the lens you're going to be looking at it through. So what's up, man? Hey, you going? Thanks for having me back. Um, so basically, I had a quick look of it. I haven't read it before. Um, I've heard of the concepts before. So if, as I was going through, things popped out, obviously. Um, yeah, right most people bat, who talk about a, this never actually read this text. So that's the other thing. I feel like it's a big echo chamber of like one interpretation was injected into the the uh, conversation sphere and it's just been bouncing around in a telephone game ever since. Mm. Yeah, so most most of what I read so far was... Um, that was okay. Like I, I, like I said, I recognize some of the concepts. Um, but yeah, there was sort of some confusion straight away in the first like four paragraphs. Um, just some things that I, you know, cause I've sort of delved into like this creation side of things for a fair while now. So, um, there just seemed to be this sort of, uh, wasn't very coherent in a lot of ways of how it explained. You know, if you were going to explain how things are created, you want some coherency. And it just didn't seem to express that in the first, at least the first part of it. But yeah, that's my initial thoughts. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having me here, Chance. Um, and it's awesome to see you guys. So it's always fun to do these little round tables and uh, talk about some interesting topics. And I have read uh, this text before. I must have read a different translation or something. So when I read the one that you sent out earlier today, uh, it was a bit different from what I have checked out before. But, um, you know, I've taken a lot away from Gnosticism um, and the pop culture version of Gnosticism is likely <laughs> what I fell into when I first came across it, you know. And so I have not really updated my personal perspective on this whole entire way of looking at everything in a while. So I, more than anything, honestly, I appreciate the opportunity um, just to be part of this and for you just to kind of throw down what you're seeing in all of this. Uh, symbolically, there is a lot to chew on and there's a lot to get to. Um, you know, obviously I follow the signs during the signs themselves. So the fact that, you know, the Demiurge is very much related to the lion, I think is very curious and Leo and Leo being right next to Virgo. Um, I think there's a lot of things we can talk about with that. Um, but more than anything, as my kind of name implies symbolic studies, I am a perpetual student. So I have an open mind. There are things that I think, um, you know, that I have gained from some of the pop culture Gnosticism, um, that I have been, um, you know, exposed to, but uh, we'll see what happens throughout this conversation because I don't doubt that there are tricky things kind of going on, just like what Slick was saying, the 1947 connection. I totally forgot about that, but that is really intriguing. So uh, anyways, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Right on, man. And you know what? There's something I've been wanting to say to you for a while, Mario. <laughs> Yo. Whenever I lay down some ideas like this and that, it's the sun or what have you. And you often reply with your own sort of MMA approach of, well, it's, it's said that it means this, it's said that it means that. And I want to point out just like as we go forward that you and I are not in dispute about, you know, 
the multiplicity of meaning. And I know you know this, but we're not in dispute about the multiplicity of meaning and symbols. So the thing is, <laughs> just like with the pop culture Gnosticism that I referred to, uh, you know, we've got this long history of these particular myths being remixed over and over again, talked about by many, many different people. And, you know, some things take off and get popular, but that doesn't always mean that that's like accurate to the original intent. <laughs> and anyway, so we are all four open-minded about that aspect of the symbolism, no doubt. And uh, yeah, maybe we should just go ahead and get into it. I a hundred percent agree right. with that. Like the, the symbols are just, yeah, they've changed so much and, and you can find versions of different versions of um, what it means. And it's the same with like the tarot cards and everything. It's all interpretation at, at some point, but there is, you, you try and look for something underneath that. Um, but, it's difficult. That's I the- personally, that's why I come at it from the language side so heavily because language doesn't have the ability to lie quite like, <laughs> and not that necessarily every interpretation that's out there uh, from some spiritual book is an outright lie or an intentional lie. But in the language, when you see this pattern, as Gabe says all the time, consistency is a hallmark of truth. And that's, exactly the angle that I intend to take this at is the, uh, the pattern in the language and then the language in the stars, those two things and how they interplay, which is the entire crux of what priestcraft was about and probably still is at the, uh, the initiated and esoteric level. Right. Yeah. I, I, I generally sort of tend towards the more um, like the gematria and the mathematical. So but the language well that should, is language. Should, that's the, they that's should the core language. that's that's the foundation yeah. of the the letter languages that's the most primary Number. part of it exactly yeah <laughs> cool all right so i made a slideshow and our thing here with the four horsemen intend we intend to go forward and do this regularly maybe not exactly every month on the month but i think that it's super fun to have the four of us reconvene on the occasion of like one of us coming up with a presentation, maybe it doesn't always have to involve a PowerPoint, but <laughs> I've definitely been raring to go to talk about this stuff from this perspective. And I had a lot of fun throughout the week, pondering it and putting together some slides today. Tried not to go too crazy with a ton of slides, but you know, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how it turns out in terms of a, a length here. So I'm going to get us into it. All right. So I called this Serpent Mothers of Wisdom. And that is our AI generated art for Dark Serpent Mother of Wisdom. I was like, yeah, that feels right. <laughs> Which I'll, I'll, I'll discuss more as we get a little further in why I chose that title, because it's right there in the yeah. language. You know, I had a thought on that uh, when I saw that that was the title. Um, we're in September right now, or we're coming through the Virgin, we're digging into, uh, we're going into Libra, right? Didn't we crossed over the equinox already? So we're in the fall officially. In Serpent, um, I was reading it just today, right next to the word um, September and uh, Sepian, which is like uh, all things uh, aquatic. Like, uh, 
What's that? Yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, my point is, when they go past the uh, equinox, the fall equinox, we're going into the water. We're going into the uh, uh, the abyss. The um, chaos. Chaos. And uh, so the fact that we're talking about serpent mothers uh, and how these things relate to our subconscious and our ancestral memory. Uh, and the echoes of that implications of that is just perfect timing as usual. Yeah. We just passed through the gate of hell or winter. Yeah. Which is Libra. Uh, right. In Buotes, we cross over Buotes in September, <laughs> which is a big gap. It's like a big chasm. And I think that's the lake. I think that that's the placid lake in the heavens and that the lady of the lake is Libra underneath. Uh, Lady Justice. And Justice it. is one of the characters in this whole Nagamati uh, creation drama, if you will. Yeah. Okay. So as I go forward, I'll try to like just pause after I go over a slide and let you guys riff on it as you want. Because there's four of us, if you want to like wave when you want to go, maybe I'll call on you. But I think that we have a good enough flow that maybe that's not even necessary. So disclaimers aside, I have... An incredible quote from Godfrey Higgins that really summarizes perfectly how I feel about, you know, metaphysics. Not that I'm against metaphysics, and I didn't include what follows this quote where he defends metaphysics as a study, but he makes a very powerful critique here. It's from Anacalypsis. This was written in 1823. It's a huge book I've been trying to get through. And yeah, I mean, he's exactly. He's like one of the main shoulders that Dylan stands on in his spirit world uh, book four. And going back to the actual, you know, author himself has been very enlightening. He's incredible. So <laughs> like about Godfrey Higgins, he says in the preface to the book Anacalypsis, like I have been, I set out to spend six hours a day for 10 years studying and getting to the bottom of our religious systems and mythology. And I wound up spending more like 10 hours a day for 20 years. <laughs> and that's the result. The book is a result of that. So it is intensely deep. And anyway, here's what he says here. Of the sayings of the wise men, there was not one, probably, more wise than that of the celebrated know thyself. And probably there was not one to which so little regard has been paid. It is to the want of attention to this principle that I attribute most of the absurdities with which the wise and learned, perhaps in all ages, may be reproached. Man has forgotten or been ignorant that his faculties are limited. He has failed to mark the line of demarcation beyond which his knowledge could not extend. Instead of applying his mind to objects cognizable by his senses, he has attempted subjects above the reach of the human mind and has lost and bewildered himself in the mazes of metaphysics. He has not known, or has not attended to what has been so clearly proved by Locke, <clears throat> that no idea can be received except through the medium of the senses. He has endeavored to form ideas without attending to this principle, and as, and as might well be expected, he has run into the greatest absurdities, the necessary consequence of such impudence. I mean, that's it. Like, that's the, that could just end the whole show. 
<laughs> so, you know, he goes on after that to talk about how he doesn't believe that man can't evolve their ability to reach further with their mind and sense deeper levels of truth and discover metaphysical principles past where we're currently at. But that this is exactly what it is. Like humanity is for as bad as we see it with scientism today and people believing in a mechanistic materialistic worldview and trusting the white lab coats. I say it all the time, the mysticism, you know, the black robes, they're doing the same thing to people. Trust us. We know we're the authority on it. <laughs> you know, which one, which one do you go for? You, you're brought into the world by the white coat and the black robe sees you out. It's the uh, checkerboard floor through and through the cult of the medics and the cult of the magi are two wings of the same shitbird, And they pretend to have this conflict with each other. But in reality, they systematically work to keep humanity in a state of pure illusion. So what I say by that, what I mean by that is this hyper reality that Jean Baudrillard talks about. And I bring this quote up all the time too: the media and media is <laughs> the same root as medic and magic, by the way, the media represents world that is more real than reality that we can experience. People lose the ability to distinguish between reality and fantasy. They also began to engage with the fantasy without realizing what it really is. They seek happiness and fulfillment through the simulacra of reality, such as media, and avoid the contact or interaction with the real world. So... <laughs> I have a way of interpreting this. I know that's kind of a crunchy quote, but my understanding of the hyper reality, to put it simply, is very perfect description of the pop culture Gnosticism. And in fact, if I wanted to, I could do like five shows just on all the different video games and popular movies and TV shows that put forward this idea that I am calling pop culture Gnosticism. That would be like, obviously, The Matrix or <laughs> even things that are more subtle, like a super popular game from 97, Final Fantasy 7, which I have covered in a bit of depth in the past, where it's pure Kabbalism. The main bad guy is called Sephiroth, and the uh, his mama is the secret bad guy who is named Genova, which is Jehovah, which is like a little wink and a nod that <laughs> Jehovah and Eve slash Sophia are actually the same being, but we'll get into that. So with those two ideas put down, I didn't really explain the hyper-reality, but it is like you get this idea of what reality is from your media, whether it's CNN or fiction. Oh, wait, that's the same thing. <laughs> and then because the actual physical reality doesn't conform to this view that you've, this filter, this lens, this astral realm that you've pulled over your eyes, the wool, you then see the real world as unreal must be a simulation must be a fake must be a prison must be an illusion you know and this has been going on since way before we have media as we call it now the mythologies of the past and the ways that the uh the churches and the religions of the ancient world would give the exoteric explanation to people who weren't willing to ask questions or go deeper into the esoteric maybe and then they believe they're in Maya, they're in illusion, or, you know, this is a fallen world or Satan's domain or what have you, because uh, everything feels unreal because it doesn't conform to the um, mythology of like, you know, miracles and Samson killing a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass and all this crazy shit that 
makes no sense unless you can decode it with the uh, astrology side of where these miracles actually live in the uh, the heavens above in terms of how they're interpreted. So I said a lot. Maybe I'll give you guys a chance to weigh in on these concepts that I just laid down as our introduction. Generally, when I'm thinking um, of that sort of hyper reality that you're talking about, it's like a, um, it basically comes down to a psychological sort of thing where you're not able to accept reality in your own world or are not able to sort of interact with it correctly. Um, so, yeah. And, and the other thing is like, I say that science and spirituality are one and the same thing. They should teach you both. If you're looking at science, it should teach you about spirituality and vice versa. So if they're disconnected, then you get this, what you're calling hyper reality or not reality at all. Um, and a construct. Um, so yeah, the, these sort of ideas that really extend from like the, that you actually create your own reality and how you go about it. And those sort of things are sort of pertinent to um, whether you're going to see reality as a um, sort of bad place or a good place or, um, you know, build those constructs around yourself. And a lot of it's self-protection, nearly every sort of negative sort of viewpoint we have is, is um, fundamentally a, 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 the the mind is trying to protect itself in some way it just comes out in a negative light um yeah the purpose of fear in nature yeah um even bad habits and i've had plenty myself um and it's not necessarily there's a reason you do it there's a reason for those habits there's a reason that they come out negatively and usually the intent underlying it all is not not negative at all um but actually you know, you're looking to quell some uh, fear, as you would say. But, um, yeah, that's my sort of little synopsis on it. Nice. Yeah. Um, you know, one of Baudrillard's things that I picked up when I read his book about simulacra and simulation, um, the best example I have that he put forward has to do with a map and the purpose of a map and how a map is meant to, you know, obviously illustrate, um, you know, a landmass and let's just say it's an Island or something like that, or the side of a coastline or whatever. So it's meant to convey reality, what the land actually looks like. Um, but at a certain point, more people are probably going to see that map, um, than actually visit the land, let alone measure it, you know, and take account, uh, if the map is actually accurate or not, you know. So the map becomes more real than the actual physical thing it's supposed to represent. And so, um, to me, you know, these religious texts, they're maps. You know, uh, Lucas just said, is this a good place or a bad place? You know, um, these religious texts are telling you what they think um, this place is. They're relaying this information for you. So in a way, I'm starting to see just a lot of like spiritual um, things out there, a lot of meta metaphysical things uh, like old occult texts and stuff and, and illustrations and whatever. It's like trying to convey a map of uh, what this physical places where it exists you know within the cosmos and then also too it's a map of like uh, the spiritual realm or spiritual domain and just kind of our place within it so whose map are you going to pay attention to are there any such accurate maps you know that's just kind of another thing that i've just been thinking about lately are any of these maps accurate you know should we be following any map um so anyways um 
that's kind of just what I'm riffing off of right now. Uh, yeah. as you, you, can, you can always check the, the people that do follow that map and see how they end up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that also makes me think of video games again, because as video games evolved, it got to the point where they're not even really fun anymore because where you used to have to like kind of use your wits and find your way to like where your quest objective is or what have you, you know, you're navigating yourself using the terrain itself and your own mental map (laughs) as your guide. And then now it's like they put a little miniature map up in the corner and they put little dots that are like, go this way. And I would find myself when playing games, just staring up at the top corner of the screen as I'm running around the game world. And I'm literally just like playing the map, not the game. (laughs) And I think in terms of what you said, it's really wise. And with the scriptural texts, I believe what we're looking at is that the map was in the stars and they applied symbolism to the constellations as a form of map with the original intention to describe like a map does how nature actually works or what nature is. But because this is done through the language of symbolism in a more abstract way than cartography, which at least is attempting to be a proportional render of something specifically accurate to the shape and dimension of whatever realm they're mapping with this constellation writing, (laughs) you know, how that idea gets lost, you know, that the scriptures were describing. So it's basically like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, which is exactly what the, you know, and then once you get to that point, it, you feel that when you're looking at the scriptures and because it's your hyper reality now, because you're taking this as the gospel, then of course things don't feel real anymore because it does feel like a copy, which is part of the Gnostic pop culture, Gnostic ideologies that this world is a copy. And so if you can if you get what I mean, you know, the Astro logos is a map. The scriptures are a, an attempt to copy that map. And then people's interpretation of the scripture is a copy of that copy. You know what I mean? And then your interpretation of their interpretation. So we're just like copy, 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 copy. And that's we it. lost track of the fact that this was just trying to tell you what the seasons do and what nature does. Right. And you know, right, there can exactly. be deeper stuff in it that you can derive from there because this is a fractal realm. If you do truly understand the cycles of nature, then you're going to understand something about yourself and about how other dynamics across the micro macro scales of dimension operate. But if you're playing the telephone game, as Jenny says here, and you don't know you're playing telephone, then good luck, everybody. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, one thing that I think about as I'm reading this particular text is I can tell there's like a, a component missing in the there's no visual aid. There's no teacher. There's no instructor. There's no mentor to do to pantomime or to, you know, speak with their hands. No oral or tradition. Yes. No inflection. No inflection. So all of the spirit of it is removed. And so there's uh, it's a very dangerous telephone game because uh, it's open to a lot of misreading. That's very well said. So I have to thank you, Gabriel. You turned me on to this guy, John McHugh, just yesterday. And I was like, whoa, somebody out there that is saying what I'm saying and what Dylan is saying, which is about this. I bet Lucas will pop back in any second, but okay. So anyway, this word Lumashi, I got this from John McHugh and he's a academic scholar who basically is describing the uh, astro theology, but from the 
Mesopotamian, ancient Sumerian side of things. And he has this term called Lumashi that is apparently a term in their language and in their cuneiform, which was translatable as constellation writing. So let me read the slide here. The astrologos or scripture in the stars was the practice by ancient priest astronomers of deriving the history of the world from interplay between the constellations and human languages. And this interplay takes the form of puns, homonyms, synonyms, double, triple, quadruple, quintuple, entendre, etc. This play of hidden words found by reading between the lines was considered to hold the secrets of the gods comprehended only by the initiated or Illuminati, which, by the way, the Illuminati or the Misti, that was the third initiation, third degree of the mystery schools that Christianity is a a copy of, (laughs) a a copy of a copy, if you will. So it's not necessarily good or bad other than, you know, So I guess my perspective is that at a certain point, this use of Lumashi to derive history of the world, there's a certain point where, you know, maybe this was believed to be true and it was a dogma and it wasn't necessarily malicious. But as McHugh points out, when a conquering empire or king would take over another region, the first thing they would do is capture the astronomers and priests and get them to write a history of that empire or that kingdom that is divinely bestowed, basically. Create a history based on, and the history would take on its own flavor because they'd be doing this Lumashi practice where they're getting it from the constellations. They're getting it from the astrology of like the time they're in and maybe a certain period of time when maybe the history goes back to in terms of how old the kingdom maybe is or something like that. And then they're looking at the interplay between symbolism and language of their culture that just got conquered and the new culture and their language and their writing and how those things overlap. And it's a big soup. And they believe that like what we do, basically, when we find syncretism between things, they were playing the same game that we play with syncretism and finding like, you know, what it sounds like is like and all that. But to them, that was them discovering truth that the logos was speaking to them and giving them history. (laughs) And so like maybe some of them didn't really believe that this was true history, but it was presented to the people as such. And we've seen it ever since, whether it's Rome uh, claiming the history of Troy, which means Trinity (laughs) and the whole story is clearly mythology, but they call it history or following that the 12 emperors of Rome, that's the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Or how England got the history with King Arthur given to them with the 12 Knights of the Round Table. It goes on and on. And so past a certain point where we have very little to go on other than these histories from the ruling class, the more you look into them, the more you see, oh, this is Lumashi. This is constellation writing. This is mythology masquerading as history. And it is it became insidious at a certain point because it justifies the ruling class currently in power with their divine right to be there through this history that is fabricated and is a copy of a copy of a copy, as we're saying. Yeah, so this is a really important point because I want to make sure that we have this lens when we look at the Gnostic 
the Gnostic origin story because to assume that that origin story is history and it is presented as such by many people, they're doing the same thing that their own conquerors, their own slave masters are, have done to them. And they're unwittingly doing it to whoever their followers are, whoever their readers are by telling them this is the history of the world. This is great, dude. I love it, man. Uh, right up my alley for sure. And it's just amazing, too, that these conquerors will obviously put themselves in the stars. They'll put their emperors and kings and whatever in the stars. And so there's whole star ma- maps that I came across recently, and it's all Christian based. It's all Christian symbolism, you know. And so there's so many star maps out there that have their own take on different constellations and everything else. Uh, it's really amazing. And, um, that's a deep passion of mine, man. I really would love to syncretize all of the world's star maps, you know, and create yeah. some sort of database and see, you know, who interpreted this constellation this way or that way or whatever. There's just a lot to gain from that. Um, so yeah, well said, dude, all around. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying as well. They're just like they created these all, all these stories, and you know, even the figures in the stars are nearly all telling the same story over and over again. They're not like, um, but we just have them as a different sign or whatever. But they're still like, you know, you look at Taurus, and then you've got a north sign sort of story that goes with that, and you've it goes on and on and on that every single sign is just directing you straight to the same story about the North. <laughs> it's really interesting. Sorry, yeah, Gabe. That, for it, mate. that guy, John Hugh is next level. And one thing that I really love is it proves that this priest class has a fingerprint and that we can test to some degree uh, their signature. And And I've been saying it. Dylan's been saying it. More people need to read Spirit World because it's so accessible. He refines it really well. But sorry to interrupt. But like, yeah, that's why I'm so stoked on McHugh because finally someone from academia that has access that we don't to things. And granted, he's talking about cuneiform, which is highly suspicious and easy to fabricate. Think Zachariah Sitchens. But (laughs) at the end of the day, so are these other texts. And maybe the Nag Hammadi scriptures are fabricated. We have no way to know. Anyway, I just totally cut you off. I'm so excited about McHugh, though. Thanks for showing me his stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, so one day here, I'm going to pull forward a signature just from listening to him and getting the idea like that there may be a new field of study opening up based on with the foundation in puns, that puns could open up a whole field of research. That blows my mind. Give me one second. I got to let the dog out right back. Yeah, well, what Gabriel just said has been said by some other authors I enjoy, like uh, Pierre Sabak says the exact same thing. Pierre Sabak's entire work is predicated on the priestly pun. Yeah, buddy. I've been thinking, I was thinking that today. I was like, what if we got Pierre Sabak together with this guy? In- the problem is Pierre still is in the mindset of the puns are encoding some kind of history. And he doesn't really get the astro theology of it. And We're so Pierre's to- like, it's aliens, man. You know, he's in the Sitchin's mindset. His work is really, really useful for the etymology and be, to see the puns in other languages. I, I love Sabak, but he is also kind of drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit. Uh, but I would, I'd, I would kill to talk to him. <laughs> I've tried. He's I'm always too busy. You, I'm writing another book. I can't. I'm going to send you a graphic. Can you pull it up for me? 
just real quick, it's um, uh, kind of inspired by this guy's work from, uh, what's his name again? John, is it Mick Hume? Mick Hugh, Mick, like Mick Hugh, Hugh, Mick Hugh. Sounds like Which Hugh. is interesting because Hugh is Bacchus and Eve. I won't get into that, but I could prove it with the uh, with with Greek <laughs> and Jesus too. And Mick is son of, yeah. So this is just like one little graphic I made. Uh, I'm not seeing it. Oh, I sent it to your personal tab. Oh, there it is. It just didn't notify my phone. Okay, cool. All right, I'll pull this right up. So we now we're putting a lot of our focus down there on this Argo. This Argo constellation, which is a half vessel. It's, I just learned this recently from our guy McHugh, that it's a half of a ship. Okay. And anybody who's really nerded out on the Operation High Jump that happened one year before the Nagamati texts were released, one year before the CIA comes out, this is all like right in that silver lining, the 47 is the uh, number for silver. That's the silver lining year. And here we have this myth that comes from uh, Operation High Jump about these dangerous disks, these circles of doom, uh, these rings of uh, death that cut a ship in half in the extreme south, all the way down in Antarctica. Well, that is exactly where Argo, the ship, is cut in half in the extreme south. So the entire story of Operation High Jump has the fingerprints of this priest class all over it. And we can prove that those fools are still pulling strings based on the system. Um, And just one more quick thought. before They're still naming leaders after the sun in tricky ways like Vladimir Putin. Right, right. Even like, look, you can see New Schwabenland in here, right? New Schwabenland. Uh, well, we all know about Schwab, <clears throat> and it is. I mean, it, it's the same family. But we got um, knows what happened land. Noose. <laughs> Schwaben knows what happened land. And so these are the keepers of the mythology. That's what they're whispering in our ear. That's what the Twilight Secret is. Is like, we will always know more than you, no matter how much you research or follow this breadcrumb trails down to all the rabbit warrens we make, we'll always know more. And we know that the trails actually are above your head. You're down here looking at the breadcrumbs, but they actually lead to the higher levels of consciousness, which is in the stars. Good stuff, man. That is a good, good weave there. <laughs> okay, so... We've got that laid down in terms of a very important foundation, this Lumashi, scripture in the stars, puns, homonyms, synonym, synonyms. The puns are crucial, though. And that's what's most difficult for us to even decipher when we're looking at the ancient world. Puns and idioms. Because we're idioms and languages we don't even speak, right? Like, so part of, that's part of what makes these texts so hyper-dimensional. They, they actually, they have meanings that are encoded a thousand different ways. Right. But I wanted to now just pose the question around the table, you know, maybe like before you read, maybe the answer of like, before you read the text, if you could all give me your quick 
viewpoint on like what is Gnosticism so that we can lay out that foundational pop culture Gnosticism uh, mythos. Me first. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We'll just go in order top to bottom. Well, I am a huge fan of the Gospel of Thomas. I always have been. Um, and I really uh, took that walk a very long time ago, and it has informed my perspective quite well. Uh, I've considered myself a Gnostic for a very long time, uh, a, you know, a, and a philosopher as well. Um, and I got to say, I had kind of, I feel like I got, a, I got a little, I got fish hooked just a little bit, <laughs> you know, I kind of bit into it because, and the reason I can say that, honestly, you got peace hooked. <laughs> I, I got, I got Pisces. Yep. The reason I can say that is because I had in this emotional pain when I found out that the Maghamadi corresponded so strongly with the CIA. That hit me on a level that I was like, oh, they fucking got me again. <laughs> they got me again, you know. Um, but that's a good feeling to know and to sit with because it will come up later. You'll think that, you know, you'll get your uh, Christopher Columbus complex where you're like, you think you're discovering whole new land. And then you find out that, uh, yeah, people been there and done that and already set up all the shows and the rides for you. Uh, and after, I don't, and now that I'm getting into it and doing a resurgence and a second take on the whole picture, uh, I'm all the more reticent and, you know, hesitant to get invested. But at the same time, I'm even more uh, captivated and fascinated on the ideas because I can see how important they are, how they've grown. That seed was planted so long ago. They've grown, they've sprouted, and the, the fruit is ripening. And so I can tell that it is very important to the collective. Uh, and now here I am, I'm a youngian, and I'm like, you know, screaming out of one side of my mouth, individual, individual, and the other side of my mouth, I'm screaming, collective conscious, collective conscious. And that is the, that's the frontier, that's the battle line. You know, that's Rome versus the, the men of the wilderness, the pagans. And that mythos of the seed is replete throughout this creation myth as well. And I'm glad you brought up the Gospel of Thomas. I really maybe didn't make it clear enough that I'm not saying there's no value in these texts. I'm not. I'm just saying, like, perfectly the way Mario described it, the map is not the terrain <laughs> and uh, mythology is not history. That's the real thing I want to lay down. And then hopefully that can pull some people out of a victimized mindset. To me, there's not, there's no deeper layer of level of victim consciousness than to believe you're in a, a loose farm and that there's nothing good about reality. That is, I don't think you can go lower than that into victimhood. But Gospel of Thomas has all kinds of really great nuggets in it. Like <laughs> bring out what is within you, you know, be <laughs> telling you to, to be yourself and find the light within. And there's definitely a reason why th gospels like that were not part of the the Roman Empire's canon. Yeah, buddy. You know, before I forget, I want to say, uh, well, one thing, uh, there's a lot of cultural context missing. Remember what I was saying about, you know, there needs to be visual aids or people pantomiming or moving or giving the emotion to the verbal conveyance. There's also cultural norms that are missing from these texts that we're picking up hundreds of years later and casting a lot of presumption onto. 
And one of those cultural norms, you know, uh, the first, um, uh, I think they call them Loga of uh, the Gospel of Thomas is about uh, he who uh, has command of these words will no longer taste of death. And that ha- and that's so open to interpretation today. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, th- I think it might have a lot to do with uh, vegetarianism. You know, they might have been a sect of vegetarians. And then. Oh, they forth- definitely will. There right. they were. Yeah. They're basing. A lot of this is, I mean, Nakamadi is in Egypt and the Egyptian priest class, they were specifically forbidden from alcohol and meat because, and other things too, but because these were, they led to sexual desire and they were trying to turn their priests into more of an androgen, transhuman, two pillars into one pillar, feminizing, which I think that's the other issue with the occult is that it is extremely feminizing <laughs> uh, not that the, I, I mean do i need to make the disclaimer that feminine doesn't mean women <laughs> it means like receptive it makes you really receptive the yin and if you're just purely in receptive mode that's how you get programmed right back to that collective consciousness versus individuality thing the to be on a, the bat the battle line on the front line as a spiritual warrior in a sense means that if you're on that line, it means that you are always balancing your scales between the individual and the collective. You're not hating one or the other, you know, you're not rejecting one or the other. You're seeing how they interplay and they mirror and using that to have the best ability possible to perceive what is true and act rightly because of it. But uh, Mario, will you give us the breakdown of the, uh, <laughs> What is Gnosticism? Give us like the little mini story. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, it's really interesting because I was just telling Michelle too. I'm like, one of the things about Gnosticism is there are different schools of thought with Gnosticism. I almost feel like it's a loaded word, you know, in a lot of ways. So there's so many different things to talk about. So the thing for me is just I'll explain my personal opinion and, and my relationship with Gnosticism. Um, the reason why it appealed to me um is because I never took it as a self uh, defeated sort of victim mindset kind of thing. I always looked at it almost just kind of like, if this is a loosing type situation, you know, on one hand, I can almost see the fact that, you know, it's like if you take a, uh, a fish hatchery and there's fish in the hatchery and one of the fish described to the other fish what the whole setup was with this hatchery, they would think, you know, that that fish is nuts. Right. And so I think that there's a possibility that there are entities or there are presences um, just beyond our senses, you know, and I've seen a lot of things in the night sky. Uh, I used to have, very high grade uh, night vision goggles. And so there's just a whole plethora of things going on up there. Some of them feel very much alive. Um, some of them kind of, um, I kind of read as being spiritual, not actually mechanical, not, um, you know, a craft of any kind. And so my mind is very much open to there being things just beyond our senses. You know, we have the seven colors of the rainbow here. I don't need to explain it to you guys, but, you know, obviously there's a greater spectrum than what we can actually perceive. 
And so are there things just beyond, you know, what we can sense that potentially are taking advantage of our emotions, of our labor, of our energy, the same way a human might have a fish hatchery? And, you know, unbeknownst to the fish, there's this whole setup and operation going on just outside of what they can perceive, you know, in their reality. And so I've always thought that was very interesting. And can I interject what, something real quick. Please go for it. Yeah. I just want to say what you just laid down. I am fully in agreement with actually, <laughs> you know, I, my point is it's not only that <laughs> like, but exactly. there's definitely the possibility of that, especially because when we see the origin of these systems and, and priesthood control methods of society and kingdoms and feudalism and all that bullshit coincides with that agriculture. And so in an as above, so below sense, when maybe when humans began the process of farming and ranching and exploiting, uh, you know, loosing the lower life forms in our physical reality, that that could, in a sense, accelerate or amplify an above version of that happening to us. I don't dispute that part, actually, at all. You know, I just dispute the the purpose of this place is for that, <laughs> you know, and then yeah, well, we're locked here. Well, there is a, a very real um, loosing going on. It's called a central bank. So, Boom. you know, it's, it's very very physical, very real, and it's yes. very direct. Right. Um, is there a spiritual component to that idea? I think it's very much alive in people's minds and and is still being allowed to, to occur. So, mm. Right. No, exactly. You know, so when I think of Gnosticism and people say the Demiurge, I don't think that there's a physical real Demiurge when people say Archons. You know, I think it's all just metaphor. And Chance, I think you're totally right that it goes back to the stars. And I think that you're going to have more answers probably studying star maps than you are, you know, studying actual maps or other maps, uh, if you will. So that's the aspect to me that I think hooked me into, you know, wanting to know more about Gnosticism. Admittedly, um, you know, I got a lot of my information from podcasts. And so that was kind of my thing is hearing it, you know, from these people who maybe they did uh, absorb the source material, maybe not. Um, I do see the danger in how it can become um, this victim mindset. So my personal opinion, I, I'm just generally very positive in my everyday life. I kind of have always been like that. And so when I think of this reality as being a potential loose farm, I don't think of it in terms of, oh, my God, what are we doing here? There's, you know, why am I even waking up tomorrow or having any dreams or ambitions for doing anything? I look at it and when I entertain it in my mind, you know, I think, well, maybe that's just how it has to be here. But that's just like what you're saying. That may not be everything here. So it almost feels like if it's a loose farm, it also has to be heaven as well. I feel like there has to be some sort of balance here that it's actually a combination of the two. You know, symbolically, we exist between a heaven and a hell or the waters above and the waters below. So it just makes me wonder. It's like, well, obviously, there is suffering here. There are people being taken advantage of. There are loosing systems here. Um, and I personally don't look at those things as being necessarily bad because they exist. So they well, it's natural law, Mario. Cause and effect. Right. It's natural law that if you seek to enslave others on any capacity, you yourself will be enslaved to something, too. That's right. You know, if yeah. you, every every boss you've ever had had a boss above them. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we have the ability to see that dynamic in our own lives and that it demonstrates a natural law mechanic. And in that sense, it's teaching us 
that if we are in a life of being loosed by our conic spiritual entities or whatever you might want to call them, that this is, you know, demonic possession, attachments, all that. It is a function and a result of our own transgressions against natural law. And thus, you know, you could call it a punishment. You could just call it a consequence. You could call it karma or you could just call it the mechanics of how reality functions as this mirror thing that it seems to be to our innermost psyche. So exactly that way, all of a sudden the loose farming aspect of the reality is like, Oh, even that is for our good because it's seeking to show us how to free ourselves through that dynamic. That's right. Yeah. And I generally think those sort of things are a function of ignorance anyway. So like you, like you said, and ignorance is sort of a loaded word in itself, but generally it just means um, polarize one way or the other. And like um, Slick was talking about, it was basically, um, you know, you have this idea of, you know, being you know, collective and then you're being the individual. So you're one way or the other. So if you're being hyper collective, then you're sort of ignoring the individual. And if you're being hyper individualistic, you're ignoring the collective. And so that's what sort of ignorance is, is you're either one way or the other. And that's why they try and get us in those states of, you know, red or blue or whatever it is. Um, because when you actually become centered and you're in that sort of middle part where you're both the collective and the individual operating together, well, that's where the power resides sort of thing. So that's where the looshing comes into play where they're actually trying to polarize people constantly and it's people's own ignorance of of the other side and how this operates um, that really sort of gets them stuck. Brilliantly said. Yeah. And so, although (laughs) we never quite hit the recap that I was searching for, which is to just throw it out there in a really simple nutshell, the, from the original high heavens or the infinite or the, the true God, there were many emanations of angelic beings. The first of which being Sophia symbolized by wisdom. And she then gave birth to a demiurge by herself. She gave birth without a father. And that that thing is called an abortion named Yaldabaoth. And Yaldabaoth is a demiurge who created the physical fallen world that we inhabit and trapped light from the most high in this realm as some sort of a, you know, vampiric system that it could feed on and keep us in illusion forever. And then he created archons that are part of the governor system of the realm. And that is the simplest nutshell you can put it into. And we'll talk more about the details of the creation myth and how it does and doesn't line up with like the Genesis story and Bible in the Bible, which there's a lot of uh, the same cast of characters, but they have quite different roles. Um, Kind of the, when you look into the Targums though, the ancient Jewish teachings, those have a lot of similarity to uh, this Nag Hammadi stuff and I'll get there, but I'm going to walk us through some terminology here again. Gnostic. This is the Webster's 1828 dictionary. I particularly love using this dictionary. It says from Latin Gnosticus, which is to know. The Gnostics were a sect of philosophers that arose in the first ages of Christianity who pretended they were the only men who had a true knowledge of the Christian religion. 
I love the Webster's 1828 dictionary. It hits. <laughs> it just says it how it is. And they pretended. They formed for themselves a system of theology agreeable to the philosophy of Pythagoras and Plato, to which they accommodated their interpretations of scripture. They held that all natures, intelligible, intellectual, and material, are derived by successive emanations from the infinite fountain of deity. These emanations they called aeons. These doctrines were derived from the Oriental philosophy. So, way back then, they, (laughs) whoever wrote this entry into Webster's 1828 Dictionary, was already ahead of most people's knowledge about this subject today, which is that these doctrines were derived from the Oriental philosophy. First of all, that's huge. And what is that doctrine? The oldest doctrine of the Eastern schools is the the system of emanations and the trinity. That's from Dr. Pritchard in a work called Analysis of Egyptian Mysteries. So the key words here, or the key word really, emanations in the Trinity. Those are things to focus on when you look at these type of texts because they show you the source of where it came from. The doctrine of emanations goes as far back as we can trace any of these, uh, (laughs) you know, priestly systems and I wanted to throw in there part of the Lumashi <laughs> is uh, Lumashi constellation writing priestly puns is also anagram. That's one. And so I was looking at Lumashi <laughs> and uh, one anagram you can make phonetically is Al Lush, uh, Al Lush me, Al, <laughs> Al Lush me. You can make that out of Lumashi. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty funny and I needed to throw that in there. But yeah, so emanations in the Trinity, these are the key phrases. And I'm going to keep rolling us forward because we do have a long, not a long way to go slide wise, but in terms of analyzing the text after the slides, that could be, I definitely want there to be room for that. So the Nag Hammadi scriptures, these are Coptic books found near Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945, which tell the Gnostic story, allegedly. Allegedly, they spilled the beans. <laughs> they spilled the beans on the demiurge, allegedly. So let's break down Nag Hammadi. First, you have Nag, which is also the root of Nagas in the Hindu. These are serpent beings. In Hebrew, serpent is Nakash. So Nag and Nach are very phonetically similar, quite interchangeable. Nag, Nagas, Nakash. And Nakash also refers to watchers or to, you know, to watch something essentially, which connects it to the Greek where you have Dracon, which is to flash or to watch Dracon. Uh, Basically, dragon is derived from this exact same concept of watchers and serpents. We're talking also about seraphim, same concept. Uh, There's many other... (laughs) This is one of the things Sabaka does really well is he'll, he'll give you the encyclopedic list of all the different monsters and creatures of mythology that are both reptilian and flying and watching you. <laughs> so Nog encodes all that stuff. Then you have in Hamadi, Ham. Ham or Chem or Ham. That's where we get Chem as in Kemet. Ham means black or darkness. So whenever you see ham, especially in sources that are related at all in any way to Arabic or Hebrew, you're talking about black. You're talking about darkness. Maybe that's why the Jews don't eat ham because <laughs> it's dark. 
But ironically, they claim to be descended from Abraham, who is uh, Ab, father, Brahm, Brahma, <laughs> or Abram, which in the Hebrew more specifically means high father, you know, Ab and Ram, Abram. Ram is the most high in the zodiac, especially in the body zodiac, it's the head. So Abraham, Ab, Ram, Ham, high father of darkness. That's the sun in winter <laughs> in terms of uh, astrotheology. So nice. Nog, Ham, and then Mod. Mod is a reverse of Dam as an Adam. So if you look at Dam, it also encodes Dame. Um, this is a, a root that is basically mother symbolism. Whether you look at it as Mod or da, uh, Dame or Dom, you're looking at a feminine symbol. So Adam encodes the feminine in its name. Just like we'll get to later, Eve encodes the masculine because we're talking about hermaphroditus here. Talking about Aphrodite has a beard, y'all. <laughs> talking about the Baphomet, y'all. Baphometus. So anyway, basically this word Nagamadi is telling, well, the I suffix in these type of languages is a plural. So Nagamadi could break down, in my opinion, and no one told me this. This is my look. This is my interpretation of it. Serpent. Watcher, Black Mothers, Makers. I didn't mention that the DNK interchange. So Mod, Madi could also, you know, you can switch out vowels all day. So Madi is also made or make, which is perfect because we're talking about the ones that made everything. <laughs> so think, keep all, keep all these symbolisms in mind. Serpents, Black, uh, the masculine, feminine, rever- or like hermaphroditic encode here with Dam. And uh, also the maker aspect, which is what the demiurge is, the craftsman. So it just awesome in Nagamadi, it's telling you so much right there. Yeah. The maiden, right, as well. The maiden. The maiden made it. Yeah. It's also the Ouroboros as well, which is basically a Mercury encode as well, which is Hydrogyrum, um, which is Mercury, which is the the snake that goes in a circle. So. R-O-Boros. We came from the circle, you know? R-O-Boros. Also, uh, we got that G-H in the middle at the bridge. That's your Mercury bridging the gap. Yep, and this is the message. That H-G never gets past Gabriel. No. (laughs) Especially when it's like right in the middle, right where it belongs. Um. So that's the spark gap, you know, the Mercury is going to be sending the messages. This is the new axis Mundi. This is what the new religion will be centered around. This word, this is the vessel. So N-A is salt. G-H is Mercury. Uh, in Amadi, like you said, you know, it's like the, the, uh, the maid. This is the maiden. This is the new goddess. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and also, and oh, another point. And Amma is also like getting you really close to Amen. Yeah, yeah. The hidden one. Oh, it's even like the morning. It's the morning lady. A.M. is the morning. Madi is the, the mother, the morning mother. Um, but another point is that these come out of caves. And that's, that's uh, super important that they're particularly coming out of caves. Um, caves have been used as a code throughout the uh, millennia 
the word cave within the cave is a code from the Septuagint. So it goes back that far, but you got Ignatius Loyola came from a cave. Abraham. All the solar deities go into a cave at one point because the cave is the cave of Brahma, which is going into winter or going under the earth. Yes. So that's how you know that we're dealing with this underworld, this undercurrent, the underbelly, this sub flow uh, going uh, that will come off as adversarial. That's why Gnostics are always like the cast outs. They have that adversarial nature to them. So this is, uh, if the sun is going from, let me see if my camera is right. If the sun goes the way, the direction that you read, then in the underworld, it goes in the opposite direction to get back to where it started, to come full circle. So the public is in the summer, out when everything's fun, we're outside exterior public. And then the winter, we go in reverse, and we have to go against the grain and do things in the opposite um, and Mercury how- does that more often and more obviously than any other of the wandering stars. Also, going right, the opposite the, way, going both ways. Yeah, with a triplicity when, nature, three times a year. And when you're dealing with a circle, you're already automatically dealing with a sine wave, which is the serpent as well. And I just want to point out too, the cave has a uh, history of being tied to being uh, the cosmic womb as well, uh, womb symbolism. Placenta, baby. Yes, <laughs> womb symbolism. That yoni lingam thing is crucial to this whole analysis as well. Now, Jenny pointed out a good one. Uh, a dam. <laughs> what does dam mean? The double meaning of dam is very revealing because it could refer to blocking the flow of the waters, which is like, feels like, like a, it's pretty antithetical to natural law to do that personally. Like and a then Levy of course, or, or a Levite and then damnation, which Adam was damned for his sin, you know, the fall and what Adam falls. Well, that's interesting because one of the three forms of raw, the Trinity from Egypt, one of Egypt's trinities, they have a shitload of them was Adam raw <laughs> spelled A T E M but pronounced it almost exactly as Adam uh, proving pro- quite well that the T and the D can be interchanged as you know, a lot of letters interchange. So Adam raw was the aspect of the sun when he was an old man. So during the day when the sun is getting low, that's Adam raw when it's rising, that's Horus raw, the child born. And then when it's up high at noon, that's Amen ra the hidden one, because the shadows go away <laughs> so there's nice. other reasons to it as I well love but that. that's one of the trinities as well and adam is the the fall the old man who else is the old man the sun in winter the sun gets old goes to die and who's the old man of uh our astrotheology that's saturn or chronos who was a name for the sun before it became assigned to the wandering star that we now call saturn and saturn had other names as well, including Adamu, Adamus, uh, like all kinds of Adam-related names were actually attributed to the deity known as Saturn that was a solar deity referring to the sun in winter, the Abraham, the high father of darkness who cuts the virgin's hair when we go through the gate into from uh, Virgo into Libra. As Mario so awesomely covered in a live stream recently. And when you're looking at um, the sun in winter, it's the analogous to midnight, 
So it's the time when the clocks reset and it's the beginning of the new year, all those sort of different things, but it's also when the stars are most clear as well. I just found a fun little anagram in there. Nagamati has got Agni, A-G-N-I, means fire, mayhem. Hey, and then that's another appellation of Jesus Christ as well. He was called uh, Agnius, which is basically spelled the same as Agni, but the G-N and just like you say Gnostic, the G-N in Latin is more like uh, Nya sound. And so that's... uh, uh, who's Agni, guys? Tell us who Agni is before I continue on that. We've Agni. Who's Agni? Fire. Means fire. Is it a Vulcan? Yeah, fire. Yeah, it's a Hindu god. He rides a ram. He was the first god. It's Mars, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sweet. And Mars is also the sun before it gets assigned to the wandering star. But yeah, um, Agni. Also encodes Odin. We won't go into that, but there's a lot of really good details on on that particular topic in the uh, Spirit World Book Four, which I highly recommend. A God's Acre for Winds of the Soul, and of course, because the uh, Christian system does come from the East, you also have one of the appellations in Catholicism of Christ as uh, Agnus Day, I believe is how they say it, and that's the sacrificial lamb. That's the symbol of the sacrificial lamb. Which makes sense because Agni rides a ram. Agni rides a ram in uh, so many other versions of it do too, like Thor riding the goats, the goat pulled chariot. So Gabriel the other thing say, is it goes at a higher level than just uh, sun symbolism for fire as well. Um, when you're looking at two polarities coming together, um, you get friction, you get resistance, you get fire. So that's um, the initial sort of you go from undifferentiated unity into differentiated, which is you have a polarity, and then a, then when they sort of start to combine, you get that friction, you get life, you get that center point. Um, so that's that's where there's a correlation between like the creation story and the sun as the creator in a sense as well. Yeah, it's the yod and the hay, which is yah. The the same sort of principle is um, fire and the water. First, I mean, yod and hay is fire and water. It's the that's why they say Agni or the fire is the first thing. You know, is the because you have to have it's the same as electrochemistry. You have two things that start to react with each other um, and, and creates that heat, and that heat then creates more things. Um, so that initial spark, the initial big bang, if you want to put it in modern parlance, um, that generally it's that heat, that fire that that is the creator that first expands and creates things. So there is a sort of like this correlation between the sun and that initial first spark of life. Yeah, the Hebrew word for it is S, uh, like hey, shin, and it's encoded in a lot of the names of mythological characters like James, for example, Yames, which is also similar to I am S, I am the fire, the one and the fire, I am, which is the one. But yeah, Gabriel, I've been saving this slide for you, buddy. (laughs) I'm surprised nobody noticed this at the bottom of the translation. The Coptic Gnostic Library Project 
this is where we pulled the translation from gnosis.org. The Coptic Gnostic Library Project was funded by UNESCO. Guys. The UN. The UN gave us this shit at the same time that the CIA was created. What? Do you guys know what UNESCO is out there? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty fucking sus right now. Why is it that we have casual conversations all the time about the most important shit ever? (laughs) This is so fucking significant. Fuck. Okay, so anybody who's not familiar with Clint Richardson, he's been blowing the horn on UNESCO. And uh, long story short, you can check all the terms and conditions of all your little gizmos and gadgets in your life. The acronym, the acronym, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Nothing sinister about that. Headquartered in Paris, France, founded in 1945. And you rearrange the S and the C and you get Unix Company. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, man. It's the United States. We are the United States. That's a trip. Thank you for that chance. Yeah, man. These guys are as nefarious as it gets, man. You put, I mean, it's a this short a screenshot from the bottom of the text that we looked at today. It's just right there in the open. UNESCO. And there's, yeah, the, they're as black as you can get. That's right. And there's EJ Brill, which is a uh, uh, Vril. Brill is Vril. Yep. V and B so, switch. Absolutely. And you, get, and you got a Joaquin Boaz in that name. Uh, okay. All right. That's yeah. Too much. Yeah. No, no surprise. Yeah. Good job. UN. Thanks for bringing this to us. Okay. Now we're going to start getting into the cast of characters a little bit and decoding from the etymological level. So you got Sophia, the main star of the show to Gnostic pop culture, Gnosticism, if you will. Sophia is called the goddess of wisdom. You have Soph in Greek, which is Sigma. Omicron Phi and or Phi, I guess those are the letters. And so means wisdom. And then the suffix Iota Alpha, which is our IA, it means state of in modern Greek. But if you go, if you look at all the words (laughs) coming from Latin and Greek that have the IA suffix, it's referring to countries. So a state of, if you will, diseases and flowers. So there's that. And interestingly, Lucas pointed out the whole, <laughs> so there's like more than one Sophia in this text, which is part of what makes it so insane. But the original, the, the super good original Sophia, the first emanation is Pistis or Pistis Sophia. What was that again, Lucas? What did you point out about that? Oh, uh, just made the association to uh, Pistol, which was um, part of a flower. Yeah. So it was and the was IA the suffix relates yeah. to flowers. Yep. You know, so, uh, I got a few quick little graphics to, if you will help me, Chance. Uh, let's see. Here you go. Uh, because the flower thing was standing out to me too, Lucas. In the same like moment that you were, uh, you guys were talking about it, I was putting graphics together trying to capture that. Because she came down and put the spark of of life, the spirit, that spark, um, into the fruit in the garden. 
And that spark inside of the fruit is the sacred geometry that we just got done breaking down on the last horses episode. Yeah. And there's some etymology I'm going to get into regarding that breath or spark too. The key word on this, and I see you sent me that, so I'll pull that up. But the key word here is wisdom or goddess of wisdom, because that is the mythological theme that, you know, is fingerprints. <laughs> uh, and the image here is a cosplay from Final Fantasy 14, where there is a boss fight against Sophia. <laughs> like this is the character in that game. Wow. Is Sophia. Uh, one thing I'll Genesis point out series is like all through and through just pure Gnosticism and they just kind of repackage it every time. But every damn game in the series, they say the sequels don't have any correlation or relation to each other, but they're actually all the Gnostic mythology just with the new sort of a new drama attached to it. Wow. Um, regarding the flower real quick um, and the maiden, the virgin Sophia, uh, there is a line of mythology um where basically a young maiden, a virgin would be given a flower and that this flower would be the impetus for her to actually have a uh, virgin birth essentially. And so there's paintings where you see the Virgin Mary being given a flower. Oftentimes it's a Lily, which I think is fascinating. Um, And so um, that's where, in my opinion, the fleur de lis um, is said to come from the Lily and that is what that symbol represents. So before gods had sex, they masturbated. And so this is something that I've come to during my Virgo research, actually. And I've read some material that suggests that Mercury is actually a self-love God uh, deity as well. And that, that that is one of the things that he represents. And so it's really interesting because Virgo would be the virgin. She's the maiden. She corresponds with the hermit card, which obviously is all about solitude and going to this cave. And so the self-love masturbatory sort of theme completely permeates a lot of things that are related to virgin symbolism. And, and so Sophia I just thought I gives birth alone without That's right. sex. Yep, exactly. And the flowers yeah, come at the vernal equinox. Virgin, vernal. Ah, nice. Nice, dude. As soon as you're talking about... um you know, Virgo and Libra and that, you, you're talking about the vesica again. Um, so, again, it's like the two polarities coming together to create the, the vesica and it, there's no sort of um, – and it, it really those two polarities coming together is the omphalos or is the, the sexual act itself. But there's no sort of – they're just joining together. Um, so it is – man and woman you can think of it that way but it's one entity because it's coming from an undifferentiated unity and they kind so of this, apply that vesica species to the female as a yoni symbol but it gets forgotten that the phallus is part of that symbol too yeah 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 exactly uh the other thing yeah. i'll throw out regarding the uh the fleur de lis too it's very interesting that in older uh compass roses and in older compasses the fleur de lis is the arrow for north that is like a classic thing so the florida lee is associated with the north so this idea of virgin birth virgin creation uh has a northern connection which i think is really really intriguing it always goes back to the north man it always goes and it just um and from that vesica then everything sort of flows and if you're looking at it in mathematical terms then all mathematics basically extend from that. And it, what it is really um, is ratio. Um, 
or rationale logic come from it. So you're coming from logos, the undifferentiated into logic, which is, you know, sort of like, um, the ratio of things or how things are, are built, you know, one, two, three, all those sort of things. And from that place, from that initial vesica, then you get three sort of, um, aspects that are, are born out of it. And these are basically the geometric mean, the harmonic mean, and um, the athrometic mean. Um, so they're like the the parts of that initial first virgin, I guess, or she was also known as the law. And then you'd have mm. parts of that law that was, was separated out. And then yeah. from there, there's the emanations of... Um, Music, basically, all the sevens, sevens and twelves, and all that sort of stuff, is a is a product of that initial virgin birth of, or the vesica. And I just realized if you take emanations and put the s from the end and put it on the beginning, you get semination. <laughs> what you just described, though, that's alchemy. That's the salt nice. sulfur mercury. That's the body mind, or body soul spirit, what have you, right? Damn, well, the the undifferentiated would be the spiritual aspect, the fire aspect, and then you're coming down into a more physical sort of, um, which would be your rational logic sort of um, area, which is your soul. Um, so the the elements, fire, air, water, earth, um, it's sort of the emanations actually go from fire down into earth. And then yeah, there is a reverse... Right. There is a reversal of that, but um, that's what it comes from, from an etheric state down into a, a material state. And that's the same as sort of in general how we think as well. We start with a thought and then we build on it and then it becomes a physical reality. Um, so this sort of not only describes um, the mathematical sort of how you would produce something with um, geometry and then get all your mathematics from it. But it's also describing um, sort of like your solids, liquids and all those sort of things of, of a manifestation from undifferentiated chaos, chaos if you like, into um, order where things are in a logical sort of set. And then it, then it goes back into it. We have these two powers constantly in and out working, which is uh, destructive side of things and the um, the building side of things. And then that preserver is the the central vesica, if you like. The mm-hmm. and then you have that eighth heaven described in the text, which is your octave point. Great. Well, the octaves sort of come out of that out of the vesica, out of the harmonic mean, and then um, it, it comes as a, a about because of really the, the G or the seventh point. Um, it's part of the, it's a fifth. So, yeah, it, it's part of this power chord type setup that occurs. Would you, would you say I have a whole music, I have a whole music uh, astrology-based episode coming. I've already recorded. You're going to love it, Lucas. But so the it, interesting it, thing about the octave, too, is when you hit the eight, you're actually hitting 13, but there's yeah, yeah. just in the chromatic or the chronatic, the chronos, chronatic scale, only the seven are in the scale. Seven out of the 12 are chosen for the scale, but you're actually talking about a 12 note system. Then when you hit the octave, you're 
repeating the first, but it's the 13th in terms of how many are wow. really in the wheel. I brought up, um, I, I sent you an image on the, the Horseman channel um, that shows the, the lineup there. You, can, you will be able to see it if you want to bring it up. I've already got Gabriel's queued up and then we'll do yours, but I I know he's ready to go. (laughs) This is is what I'm here for. These are really good uh, digressions that are exactly the conversation that need to happen. I'll be right back. I'm going to pull up your slide, Gabriel. You let her in. All right. All right. LC, I want to check with you. You mentioned the first circle is harmony. The second circle is geometry and the third component. What was that word? Uh, Arithmetic. Um, Oh, arithmetic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so man. they're types of means, they're types of ways of calculating um, where a between two points, in a sense. Right. Um, so, and one's based on squares, one's based on sort of like the normal a- arithmetic mean is um, really um, just like you would have three people on there, yay tall, and then you add those tall people to get all the, the, the people's numbers heights together and then you divide it by three and that yep. would be your normal arithmetic but the the harmonic mean is used for music and the other one's like a geometric and that's that's based on like squares and stuff like that so they're, they're different types um some of it's used for say um calculating um loans and things like that they use them. okay so right yeah right on um so that's going to come up uh because like uh, some of the work that I'm doing right now uh, is kind of is paralleling this in kind of a beautiful way. So that harmony, geometry and mathematics will kind of be a theme that triplicity uh, aspect is about to pop up here in a second. But um, so uh, one of many cultures uh, interpretations of the forbidden fruit is the pomegranate. And so this is just kind of that uh, example I wanted to bring forward of like how the spark within the fruit of knowledge is geometry. It is, uh, you know, these sacred truths that, you know, I can say your pomegranate has uh, shapes in it and it'll be true long after we're gone. It was true long before we got here. And so we try to meld our mythos onto that uh, perennial wisdom. And so that's what I think is really beautiful about having the fruit of knowledge being a seed in and of itself that you can go out and prove. And so uh, it is like a nugget or a kernel of truth. Um, So I just want to to lay out the gravy you were telling me last night of or did you forget it because you're no longer fasting? Like you were talking about perspective is the forbidden fruit. Is that what this is going into? I could go there. It was just tripping and just sending me the, wow. the wildest insights last night. I was on I, fasting brain. You were really activating something. I was super all day yesterday. I was having I, like, I, I felt like I was on a 24 hour weave. Cause I was like talking to Gordy and talking to uh, Juan and like talking to Sean. I woke up talking to Sean. It was like a 24 hour weave. And uh, yeah, so that was fun. And we should maybe put a pin in that because of the, um, when we come back to McHugh, John McHugh and his work, because yeah. Yeah. I've I, got slides for that. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. Uh, but what I'm getting into here is more about the, um, the sacred geometry and how 
these myths are piggybacking on uh, objective reality or consensus reality, I guess. Um, so this is Mark Zuckerberg. A lot of people saw this many years ago. He was being interviewed when he was still kind of up and rising. And they kept teasing him like social media was like brassing him about his hoodie. And they kept asking him, what's up with the hoodie? And uh, he, they got him on an interview, put him in a corner. But he started acting weird when they started asking him about it. He's like drenched with sweat. He's really like not comfortable. If you just want to go look it up on YouTube, you should watch it. There's something there's more uh, going on than what we're being told. But he ultimately takes off. Zuckerbot malfunction. Yep. Yep. And when they open up his hoodie, what I see here in this image, this is a not only is it the pomegranate of Sophia, but look at the arrows going in all opposing possible directions. This is the pleroma. This is a symbol of the yeah, pleroma. It's a six around one, too. Yeah, it's a cube. You got it. You got it. And so um he is cloaked. He's hooded. This is his hood. He's a part of the brotherhood. He's the hooded one. I started looking up the word Borg. The word Borg is Norse for sheepskin in replies to certain Celtic societies, such as the, you know, the brotherhoods and their, uh, the wearing of a hoodie. So the word Borg in Norse confirms the mythos that he's living out on the stage in front of us. And so this is a, and we know he's in the priest class. He's part, a member of this priest class. Um, and so what we're seeing is those. That's some good Lumashi, except you're looking at celebrity stars rather than the stars of the sky. <laughs> right. And there's a star in the shirt, right? There's a star in the shirt. When we look at sacred geometry, we're looking at stars. And that's where puns and these transcendent triple quadruple entendres that McHume was talking about are going to come into play. And they always have been. And some people are late to the game and it's been running in your subconscious. You've been getting the data. You've been getting the info. You just didn't know you were getting it. And uh, once you start uh, doing your research, learning your systems, getting into this gnosis, uh, Levels of truth reveal themselves that were there all along. And it can be a little overwhelming. It can be really oh, yeah. overwhelming. Absolutely. Uh, I just have to point out real quick that, you know, a hood is a symbolic veil. You know, it reminds me of the cave also being a symbolic veil. And I was getting into veil symbolism on my stream uh, last Friday. And veil symbolism is very much tied to Virgo and the Virgin and Sophia. They even mentioned it in the text that we read earlier, you know, that we're going to go over right now. Yeah, and I got so a, I think that's, a veil too in this. Yeah. So and I think North that's really interesting. Polestar, all of it. Ooh, nice, nice. I'm into it. Uh, also, a lot of times, uh, the hermit, who I already said corresponds with Virgo, he's holding a lamp, right? And within the lamp is a six-pointed star many times. That's part of the tradition, right? And then also, just to kind of um, wrap up what I was mentioning earlier regarding the lily and this virgin birth idea, um, Lilith is considered to be there's many stories about Lilith it's like she's the whole spectrum of just like different ideas and things like that but uh Lilith is also considered a mother of abominations right which is similar to like Tiamat who's like the serpentine mother and things like that and completely overlaps with everything we're talking about with Sophia so yeah, yeah all one thing 
It's all yep. from the same doctrine of emanations. You know, and when we talk about abortions, no one's brought up yet that in legal speak, what is an abortion? It's when the baby is un, does not isn't delivered with everything, basically. So whenever they cut that cord and steal that placenta, that is legally an abortion. So there's a lot to that. I'll get to that when I break down demiurge as the, with the etymology that that's encoded in it too. Wow. That's going to be very important. Yeah, so I'll just done this real quick, but I just wanted to show that um, down the bottom there with um, the septenary cipher, you can apply the um, the chords to it or the notes, and it will follow all the way up. So the the beginning one will be C sharp. I just I don't know with C sharp only because the G end up in the center, but you could do it with any sort of placement. Start with D or F or whatever, but um, when you have the C sharp, C sharp, the end um, part of the cipher is another C sharp, and then that um, G is the perfect fifth, um, and so it's related to um, you know the harmonic mean as well as the point six six six, which is um, so you're getting this musical sort of uh, correspondence to the letter uh, seven there, and it's actually called a power chord, so. Uh, I just found that, found that fascinating, um, the sort of correlations to that sevenfold, 12, 13, all those sort of numbers and this relationship to music here. Um, but, you know, I've done a little quick chart and it's showing that um, that sort of movement from undifferentiated to polarised to the vesica, which is the two sort of polarizations coming together. And then it brings about these different ratios, and then you'll have the three geometric, harmonic, and uh, arithmetic arithmetic uh, mean sort of coming from that. But out of the vesica also, um, if you see our last sort of horseman, it's all about the cube, and from that vesica, that's where you get the cube. Um, that's where you get all those sort of um, things that I was talking about last time. So Brilliant. The 27. I can't wait to drop this music episode I got in the shoot. <laughs> it's going to be so good. I learned a lot. Okay, so we broke down Sophia a little bit. We just pointed out the key terms here, which are basically, to recap on Sophia, the important takeaways symbolically, keywords, wisdom, and, uh, well, flowers. And I didn't put it in this slide, apparently, but oaf, oafis. Sof or Ophis. Sof encodes Ophis. We'll just say that much. And the Ophis is the serpent. Uh, but we'll get to that. So the, let's look at the Demiurge. This is her abortion. This is her baby that is apparently the creator of the material world. So just right there, Gabriel, tell me if you see this. Demi means half or partial. Yep. Erg, yep. the Proto Indo European root of the word erg. It's not urge as we think of urge in English. To tie or bind, very similar to the Latin religare. So, <laughs> how, how do they remove your other half when you're born as an abortion legally? They clamp it, right? They tie it. They bind it. That's how the placenta, the cord is cut. So there's that. That's in there for sure. 
I thought that was interesting. And there's more to the word Demiurge. We'll get to it. But his other name, Rex Mundi. Rex is king. Mundi means world. So Zeus, uh, in the name of Deus, was called Redemptor Mundi, as was Christ, as were so many Mithras, so many other savior deities, Redemptor Mundi. And because the Gnostics associate the Christian God with this Demiurge or Rex Mundi, the Christian Jehovah or the Jewish Jehovah too, uh, who, by the way, is Jupiter <laughs> and the same, they're all the same guy. Um, the king of the gods. That means Rex Mundi and Redemptor Mundi definitely go to hand in hand. If you do that fun old R to L interchange, Rex is Lex. Lex is the word. So Rex Mundi, Logos Mundi, Lex Mundi, the Logos, right? The other name for the Redemptor Mundi is Logos. And, uh, you know, if you go back to the whole creation myth in Genesis and you read it for like what it actually says, because, okay, here's the thing about etymology. People can, and this, I got this sort of insight from Higgins, as he pointed out, people can talk shit. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) People can talk shit on etymology all they want, but then they'll go run to translations of scriptures and be like, totally accepting of that. But to accept one person's translation of ancient dead languages that could have all this priestly context of puns and double entendre, that is n- no different. It's probably a weaker move than, uh, you know, accepting etymology or philology as evidence for something. There's really no difference. <laughs> translation and etymology go hand in hand. So if you're accepting any translation, you're accepting etymology, in my opinion. Thus, this Rex Lex thing. I think that there's something to that. Now, manda in Aramaic means gnosis or knowledge. And M-D-O, M-N-D-O in Chaldee, which would be like uh, Mem, what's the N in he- the Hebrew alphabet that is the same as the Chaldean? Something. <laughs> the noon. Yeah, Mem, Noon, Dalet, and then the O is probably I-N. So anyway, manda or M-N-D-O means gnosis knowledge science and manda mundi valves are interchangeable 100 percent valves are totally filler especially in that chaldee where they're just giving you they don't even have valve points back then uh the reason you can justify switching out valves just willy-nilly is because just think of how people who speak english in one region sound compared to another language or another english speaker somewhere else like for example, if you've ever heard a New Zealander talk or this guy, Lucas, <laughs> New Zealanders are worse than Australians in terms of the way they pronounce things. But like, you know, we say Omega, they say Omega, you know, like they have totally different vowels, even though the letter is the same in the script. So Manda is Mundi, in my opinion. So right there, even <laughs> Gnosis, knowledge, science is tying you right into Rex Mundi uh, with Manda and the Mandeans. Look it up. They are one of the original so-called Gnostics with this type of ideology, which is Kabbalism. So any comments on this before I move forward? Oh, yeah. Chugging. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This is really fascinating. Thanks for doing this, dude. I am really appreciating, honestly, all of this. This is really rad. Um, I got to give shout out again to Dylan Sikoshio because he gave me some major keys by letting me work on his Spirit World books and 
without those keys, I wouldn't like some of this, like the Manda and MNDO of Chaldee. I didn't know until I read his book and then other stuff I can just decipher because I know the pattern now that he outlined. So shout out to Dylan again, read spirit world guys. It's really accessible condenses the stuff into a form that would save you from having to read hundreds of hours of old books to get a clue. <laughs> yeah. So, right. Go Hell ahead. Yeah. Mario. No, that's awesome. Um, I just want to say that, you know, I'm attributing Sophia heavily to Virgo, the Virgin, the maiden of the Zodiac. Right. I think there's other constellations that I'm sure apply. Uh, but to me, that makes a lot of sense. She is ruled by Mercury. And with this little outline here, I'm seeing a lot of mercurial symbolism. And so the half or partial, you know, Mercury, you know, um, he is uh, dualistic. He mer, uh, mermaid, right? And so he is both halves. He's masculine and feminine. He's a metal or a quicksilver, at least, right? Is both a metal and a liquid. Um, and then you're mentioning uh, gnosis, knowledge, science, uh, a lot of the gods, a lot of the deities that bestow these things upon humanity are very mercurial. And then also in the text too, the demiurge is told to move, you know, or the other translation I read uh, that he just moved, he started moving, you know, and so that's very mercurial as well, being the messenger of the gods and everything else. So I see a lot of mercurial symbolism here, but I tend to see that everywhere these days. So I'd be kind of curious. Mercury is the redeemer as well, you know, yeah. psychopomp. Totally, totally. Moon, I love to know. Moon being world, well, yeah. Virgo, the Virgo is the Earth, right? You you see it everywhere, Mario, because it is everywhere. It's literally <laughs> totally. the whole story. That is the whole story. It's it's what it is. <laughs> right. It's just right. different forms of it. Um, so yeah, yeah so one, that's once, what I'm you, once up. you get to a heart of it, that yeah, it's it's pretty sort of. Once you work out what you're looking for, the character, you'll see it everywhere. Yep. Being half serpent as well. Serpentine mm -hmm. symbolism lines up with Mercury. So mm -hmm. th those are my quick two cents. The one thing I see with, uh, you know, Mandeans, uh, um, Mandam is like to compel or to make or to force or mandate mandatory uh, to uh, to push the issue. And then Ian's. So we have like control of the aeons. These guys are the, you know, if, if you create it, then you control it. And this is the source. We are looking at the place, the, those who control the aeons because they understand it. It was made by them. Right. And um, Rex Mundi, Yaldabaoth. I didn't even get into breaking down Yaldabaoth. I guess I forgot that that was a name. <laughs> But it's got Yah, it's got Baal or Baal, it's got Boath, which means hosts. So it is the the Yah, like Surya, the Ooh, sun god. It's got and, double, and it's yeah. got Baal. Doubleoth, the Baalath. It's got double. Well, yeah, if you do that B D mirroring, then yeah. And so another thing that's popping out to me now that I'm looking at it, also back to the Mercury and the psychopomp of it all. Mandeans, manes, M-A-N-E-S, the Latin term for the spirits of the, the dead or the underworld who need to be guided by a psychopomp whom Hermes or Mercury was said to be the guide to the manes or Jesus going down into hell or the underworld to free souls in hell that were there before the redeeming 
that he did to all the living people on the earth. Redemptor Mundi. Right. So right. going into redeeming the earth, going into the earth, into hell, underworld. So Mon, Manes, the Mon of Mandeans, and then Dia, which is the uh Dia, Day, Deus, Deus, the Dis. This is again the god, but like when talking about Dis, that's kind of more of the the winter half or the the mean face, the, the tragedy face of Janus rather than the comedy face. So Mandeans in itself is a word encoding Redemptor Mundi in a big way as well. You know, yeah. I got, I got a, a kind of a fun share. I'll try to be quick about it. So, and it's incredibly appropriate that you have the, this Sphinx here, you know, uh, looks like a, no, it's a lion with a, a, a Sauron type guy writing it. <laughs> here let's, let's go on to the next slide so you can see what that picture is oh nice 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 okay so it's a it's a it's really kind of profound that you have this i mean whatever this this i guess chimera. it stinks like because it's a flying lion and right yeah so this chimera on the same page that you have mandeans the origin of this demiurgic uh idea the sphinx had two riddles for uh oedipus and a lot of people forget the second riddle. First riddle, what creature is born on four legs in the morning, uh, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? And he sits there all day long because if he gets it wrong, he dies. The end of the, at the end of the night, he stands up. He says, I got your answer. It is man. A man is born crawling on four in the afternoon of his life. He is upright and walking, and when he is aged, he needs a stick to walk with three legs. And she's like, all right, all right, you think you're slick, huh? She has another riddle that people forget. The second riddle is there are two sisters. One sister gives birth to the other sister, who in turn gives birth to the first sister. Who are the sisters? The answer is... That's the two Sophia's. <laughs> do, you, do you guys know? I'll give. I, no, it's day and night. So the answer to the first the riddle, two Marys. Was, you got it. Yeah, Isis and Nephthys. So the first riddle was man. The second riddle was D A N. Day and night, man. Day and night, Mandians. No, I was going to say, I was, was going to say, uh, Demeter and, uh, Persephone, the same right. sort of thing. Right. It could be like Artemis and Demeter or Apollo, Apollo and Demeter or something like that. Sort of op- opposite ends of the, um, zodiac there or opposite each other. Yeah. I'll share this real quick uh, because you brought up the Sphinx. Uh, I was looking into the riddle of the Sphinx recently. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is that a lot of people consider the Sphinx to be a culmination of both the virgin, the maiden and the lion. Um, And that a lot of people say, if you look online, I didn't realize how much information was out there with the Sphinx. I guess it makes a lot of sense. Right. But it was insane. I couldn't, there was just so many articles. It was nuts. Um, But one of the things I saw popped up several times was that uh, in Egyptian astrology, apparently, and I would love to get this verified, they believed that Virgo was the beginning of the astrological year and it would end with Leo. 
And so you are encoding the beginning of the astrological year and the end of the astrological year. So in one hybrid, you're kind of encoding the whole entire Zodiac from Virgin to Leo. Okay. Uh, makes sense. You, bas- you basically so- just told me that the cat's asshole in Regis is the occulted new year. Yeah. Those are your gate. words. The, the gate of the gato. <laughs> That's totally what that means to me. That's amazing. Thank you, Mark. And, and the funny, was, th- funny thing is, is when we get into Virgo, that's when there's all this programming of the cat ass trophy. How many, when you look at the list of how many movies they give us where like the meteor hits on September 23rd or 22nd, where like, you know, that gate of winter into chaos or hell at the equinox is consistently pull, you know, they consistently pluck that archetype cord in the collective consciousness who has no idea that that even matters. They don't even know it's the equinox that day. Right. But instinctually, ancestrally, there is that fear of like, Oh shit, it's going to start getting, the days are getting shorter. We better get ready. (laughs) Winter's coming. Chaos is coming. Death is coming. The other thing that when, when you're saying that the, the line and the Virgo are sort of the end of the year, what I was, when I was looking at um, the, the man, the bull, the lion, and um, the eagle, and you do the you hop up in the morning at before the day breaks, and you actually read the stars before the sun gets up. Well, that time of year would be the would be the um, autumn equinox. So Leo is actually um, the autumnal equinox in that system. So that makes a lot of sense that that would be the end of the day where the lion, where the, and I said to you, um, slick, uh, I remember, um, messenger, oh, yeah, the, okay. the, the, the lie on the lie on the ground, it, you know, goes down. That's when the, the sun is, um, right at the, right at the ground level sort of thing. From oh, our nice, perspective. Dude. Yeah. I love that. And obviously the Sphinx is laying down. Yeah, and it's yeah. So that that would be just the autonomal equinox, which would be halfway. Um, right. So it's I wonder if it's between two pyramids or or something, because it'd be like the two pillars and that central. I, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking about procession too. How you know, if you back up a a step, the gate of springtime or the gate of heaven becomes that Pisces happens like when you transition into Pisces, thus, you know, Pisces, Pisces, Sophia, there's that too. Yeah. And then if you did that back up a step, then the, uh, the Leo to Virgo transition becomes the equinox. Yeah. For the fall. Well, yeah. When you're looking at it, the, um, Aquarius becomes the, the herald of spring, um, pouring the waters out on of life out onto the earth. Um, but then Taurus becomes the bull of heaven. Um, and yep. associated the whole May Day, Beltane, Mid Heaven. Um, so this, she becomes the summer solstice. Um, yeah. And so the eagle is, is the winter, the winter solstice in that sense. Or, or, um, Scorpio is Scorpio's tail is the last, last bit of the winter solstice in that, in that system of, of viewing it. And yeah, it still works for today. There's some other Sphinx symbolism. I think this is, I know I haven't really quoted from the uh, text itself yet. (laughs) And we're so far into it, but this may even need a part two to like fully analyze the text. We just laid down a lot of ideas here, but uh, 
there is a part and I'm looking for it in my screenshots and maybe I'm not going to find it easily while talking and stalling for time. But there is actually a part where they refer to a beast, if you will, that is the man, you know, bird. It's basically the four royal stars, the way that they do the whole. Tetramorph. Uh, yeah, the tetramorph. That's the word. Yeah. 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 That it's also like almost like a dragon as well. Um, that when you draw, oh, sure. That when you draw those sort of um, uh, zodiac creatures together, they morph into a sort of like a, a a dragon because it has claws like an eagle and um, mouth like a lion and all these sort of you know serpents and so it, it's it's sort of like a description of the whole zodiac, the winged um, dragon, winged serpent. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Chance, if you want, while you're looking, you can pull up that last image. I got a, a little riff on the Virgin thing from modern events, you know, kind of like pointing out that we're, we're still dealing with these fucking pun, like quadruple entendre ton guru masters. They're still at it. They're still at it. They're still using the stars to pull down, you know, these, the, the emanations of the influence of the stars on us. Uh, but yeah, this one came up. Yeah. Oh, you're muted now, Gaby. Here we go. <laughs> so this this is so crazy. So we're going. We this uh, image was made approximately a month ago. You can see at the bottom it was made in September. Um, and in September we go through a minor decan of Virgo. One of the minor decans of Virgo is Buotes. Uh, you got Corvus, Buotes, and Coma. Coma is the, the clunk of hair that we talked about recently. Uh, and Buotes is a void, and it's in the shape of a kite. It's a big blank spot. And no matter how close they look, there's nothing there. It's like there's just nothing there. It's an it's a, a absence of things. And so... This image has been stirring up a lot of response and it came out. Um, I think we're, when this image was made was a, right around when the queen passed away. So it's very interesting. The queen left this plane on the sign of Virgo on the, that axial alignment of Virgo and Pisces, right? Visica Pisces, the Virgo and the Pisces, that 180 lineup. And so the queen passes away. We've got Kardashian. Uh, showing her ass on the cover of this magazine at the same time that the minor deacon of Buotes is affecting our minds. She's showing her booty on the time of year that Buotes is dominating that higher realm of the of whatever this experience we're having is, whatever words you use to describe that. So it's uh, the front line is interview, and I changed it to anterior view. She literally is posed up against the flag, the icon of the flag, which has the stars on it. She's showing you the stars, right? And, uh, you're and what to- does that flag represent to the right. world? Well, Demo- democracy. Yeah, yeah. Demon crazy. I mean, democracy. Nice. And nice. you know how the Greeks would say boetes? Voetes. Votes. 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 Absentee ballots. Yeah, the B, the B is a, the beta is more of a, of a, the sound to the Greeks. 
Wow. We just turned one word into like absentee valence because it's a void, because it's an absence of light. Wow. So it's also shaped like a butt plug. <laughs> it has a distinctly phallic nature to it. Um, so I put some graphics together because it is, you know, we're in the ninth month. We've got the, like, like Mario mentioned, we've got the hermit card here, month number nine. Well, guess what? In the ninth level of Dante's Inferno, that's where the usurers and the sodomites live. They or live. That's where they're stuck for eternity uh, because they usurers put their hands up your ass and use you like a puppet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of powerful symbolism of the hermit, the ninth level of Dante's easy bake, as I call it, and how the ass is an anti-fertility symbol. We are in the opposite of the fertility year, time of year. It's This is the time when you cut, you go out and you take all the fruits and all the harvest and you cut it. And so now is the time for the opposite of fertility, which is in the human anatomy is symbolic by the ass. So my question is, are sodomites still virgins? And if they are, does that make the entire city of Sodom a huge collective virgin sacrifice? That is a uh, food for thought. <laughs> you Dude, know, not- really intriguing stuff, man. Honestly, on a few different levels. I don't know if I have anything to add to it at the moment, but you're definitely getting me thinking over here. So nice. yeah, good nice. stuff, dude. Yeah. That's why we bring Gabe. His brain works different. <laughs> he sees what others don't, but I never even realized that they're claiming that Buetes has a 330 million light year void. Yeah, and you're making all this correlation to sodomy and the, you know, the the void. <laughs> wow. And it's a 33, you know, they call it, they say it's 33 million miles or light years, whatever they say it is. That is, uh, of course, it would be 33. Yeah. So funny, too, is like Boete's the crafts is basically like a workman, right? He works the field. And that's what the Demiurg is. The word demiurg in Greek is a public servant and refers to a worker. So in the mythology of the Eastern philosophers, according to Webster, 1828, an aeon employed in the creation of the world, a subordinate workman. So the interesting thing about this creation text is that there's two atoms. There's like two or three Sophias, depending on how you look at it. There's two Eves. There's the Demiurg, and then there's the uh, the Atom of Light is not exactly... The, the Atom of Light is kind of like the Atom Cadmon. It's like the big cosmic atom that is part of like the the original heaven or something, I don't know, beyond the Keter. But, uh, oh my gosh, I just read Ginny B's comment. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I can't even put that on the screen. But thank you for letting us know. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> there, there's like all these polarities, which is perfect to the Yoni Lingam idea, uh, the polarities idea, the Vesica Pisces that Elsie was helping us visualize with his graphic. And the other side or the other polarity, the Demiurg, is the perfect man. 
or like the savior. There's this part of the myth or the creation story where they refer to this being that gets sent down into the simulation or into the construct or however you want to describe it with perfect knowledge of the truth. And he takes form in one of the modeled forms as in like the, the clay bodies of the Demiurge's, Demiurge's creation. So in terms of that whole idea of modeling, you know, they're called modeled forms. To me, that's like completely pata, you know, potter out of clay. These other deities, we have Vulcan, Jesus, Pata, Lu, Thoth, just to name a few who are our workmen or craftsmen of some kind. And anyway, uh, this perfect man idea, I think, is part of, of course, your Trinity symbolism, creator, destroyer, preserver, savior, preserver, savior, same thing. So like when they talked about in that other definition of Gnosticism from Webster's 1828, that it was like an agreement with the teachings of Pythagoras. Yeah, I, I maintain Pythagoras is astrotheology and is representative of this idea of the perfect man with perfect knowledge from heaven that takes form in a human body. And we see that theme repeated throughout all of the uh, messiops, if you will, of the, the idea of a external savior in the form of the, the mercury demi or a psychopomp, whatever. So in a very interesting way, um, not only, you know, if you were to take this literally, it's bizarre. Like part of the contradiction of this is that the, those who take the pop culture literalist, this is history view of the Gnostic creation myth will be like, well, the, the Christian and Jewish God, the Jehovah, the Yahweh, he's the Demiurge. He's actually the devil. He's the evil God. And I'll get more into that later and like why they're confused about that. But at the same time, even though they, you know, they probably never actually read it, <laughs> but their, their creation mythos refers to Christ specifically Jesus Christ by name. And that this is the perfect man with perfect knowledge of heaven coming into the world. So like, you know, how can you, how can you reconcile that Jesus, a carpenter, a craftsman, a demiurge is the savior or the perfect man while also believing that his father, the creator of the, the Trinity between Jesus, Holy ghost and Jehovah is the bad guy. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like completely contradictory. It's completely nonsensical. Totally. They totally lose the plot of their own um, mythology. Whenever they, you know, rail against the, uh, the Jehovah characters, like that's the devil. So there's a lot to say about that, but uh, if you guys want to yeah, chime in. No, I don't think necessarily having that, um, the Jesus character or the Mercury character as um, a symbol of perfection is so bad. Well, but if no, you take it literally, obvi- take it literally, um, obviously it's, it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. But if well, you're in alchemy, you use the solvent or the savior to create the, the chemical wedding, right? Hieroscamos, but then you remove the solvent from the equation. Thus, the mercury, the savior, the psychopomp shows you how to merge your polarities and and activate the generative principle within yourself. But if you then keep the mercury in the mix, it's like Balderson was saying, if you're making some kind of extraction out of a metal that you're going to ingest, 
Well, what was your solvent? It was fucking hydrochloric acid or something. You're going to leave that in it. It's against the principle. So like the problem with the messiahs religions is the mercury savior solvent aspect is meant to then be removed from the equation because it actually unbalances your hieroscamos because mercury needs to take on the polarity of either positive or negative based on what role it's achieving to bring together these two yeah, sides. I'll say, I'll say what you're but saying. if you leave it in there, then you're still going to be polarized to whatever side the mercury was when it came yeah, in. Essentially, you, you've got your book, you read the book, and then once you learn the book, you throw away the book. You're not going to start idolizing the book as, uh, well, you know, this is this is Perfect me, as Bacchus, so. which is a Jesus, was called Liber Pater. Liber meaning yeah. free father or book father. And that's the what these pattern. things are. They're, they're teaching tools. That's what the Zodiac is as well. It's a teaching tool. It's nothing more. It's it's actually just showing you the seasons when we do certain cultural events, when we um, how to describe things, how things relate. Um, like I say, geometry, mathematics, all these different sort of concepts are all bound up, and that's basically it's um, the the trivium and the quadrivium. <laughs> that's that's all it is, and and now it gets this sort of like you know mythical these sort of it becomes super reality like you were talking about before and it's just it's just not what it is it's right. they're very sort of mundane and, and scientific and you know work with reality and like when you're looking at um libra and virgo and that they they're teaching you about the harvest time um they're teaching about um you know this is when we plant seeds and harvest fruits. And this is about uh, weights and measures and, and very, you know, <laughs> very realistic things that you need to sort of know. It's, it's a schooling, basically an oral schooling using the sky. So. Well said. Yeah. There's no value in this unless it teaches you something about nature and yourself in this Alchemy is a great allegory for it because it's sort of the the most you can boil down the processes into this trinity dynamic that is repeated throughout the whole scale of micro to macro. So real quick, uh, Chance, I have a question. So did you say that the Demiurge is associated with working the field? Uh, the Demiurge as a word in Greek refers to a subordinate workman. Oh, your field worker would fit into that category. Gotcha. Right. I love that. I mean, to me, it's just one of these things symbolically, right? Um, Think about this too. Slave, a subordinate workman is a slave. You just flip that A and L and slave is salve. Yeah. Asian, salvator. Yeah, yeah. Serpent, it's serp. You know, it's the savior. Well, when you said field and then you had your slide, and it's like Bata working with uh, clay, you know, the potter's wheel and everything else. I'm just reminded of the symbolism of, you know, Virgo, the virgin, the maiden, the queen of heaven. I associate her with being the queen of heaven, but also the queen of earth. So she's very much like a terrestrial physical sort of um, there's an expression of her and it's the the earth essentially. So to think that her heavenly expression gives birth to this entity, this masculine sort of deity creature thing. And then here on earth expressions of him will be working with the actual land itself. And if he's working the field, he might be sowing seeds. And that's a big part of Virgo symbolism is fertility 
and how that relates to agrarian culture and uh, sowing your seed into the ground and everything else. So how I many think that's times kind of is the word seed in that text we looked at today too? Right. Seed, and, seed, you, seed. and you look at um, Boaties and if he's um, working the field, as you say, then you've got, um, you've got Libra, which is, was originally called the furrow. So the, the furrow is where you actually sow your seeds. Yeah, it's a plow. So, right? it, but it's also where you sow the seeds. It's the bottom half of Virgo. So that's where you actually go to sow your seed. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yep. even the word "fucking" me etymologically refers to sowing seed in the ground and plowing. Yeah. So yeah, it was the 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 Virgo was two. It was the frond and the furrow. The one was to do with the palm leaf, um, the frond, and you'll see um, images of her holding the palm leaf, um, and that's more to do with Demeter and grain, and then you'll have the grain sort of side of things. One's to do with sort of harvesting of the, the fruits, and then one's to do with um, sort of seeds and grains and things like that, which is Libra, the lower half. That's why there's the measurements um you know, those, the scales and those sort of things. So the, the sort of both combined into plant sort of stuff and harvest. Um, but yeah, right, two right, different yeah, sort exactly. of areas of the body, if you like. Sure. And there's people who think too that, um, Virgo, Libra and Scorpio, they were, it was actually one gigantic constellation. And then Libra was introduced, dividing it into three. And so even the scales of Libra, they're called the Northern Claw and the Southern Claw, you know, and you can see some star maps where literally like the, um, the scales of Libra have Scorpio's claws literally on the pans themselves. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm more of the opinion that the lower half of Virgo, um, is actually Libra. And the actual claws were part of um, Scorpio, so that, that's just my sort of opinion that they that Scorpio was actually um, because if you look at um, Virgo and that, it's huge signs. They take up too much space, and if you start to divide the 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 year into days, um, like count days, and as if you were going to divide into twelve, you would have thirty days for each month. And you start at the um the equinoxes or the the first equinox, then naturally divides Virgo into two. So that's the only reason I I do that um or say that is because when you count the days like that, which would be a simple method of actually seeing where you are in the year. Yeah, just yeah. Quick, just Go a ahead. quick point: uh, an oversized Virgo. A Virgo that is taking up more space than the rest of them is a pregnant virgin. Ah, nice. Uh, yeah, I see your point for sure, Lucas. Um, the other thing that's really interesting that I think about is how Virgo and Scorpio are both, um, you know, their glyphs are composed of M's. So you have the M and kind of like the Jesus fish for Virgo, and then you have the M with the hook and the arrow for Scorpio, right? Exactly. And they're balancing on the sides of uh, Libra, which I think is kind of curious. So there's definitely this interesting connection between all and three look at sides. That. The glyphs make the word mom. Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. For sure. I like uh, Jenny nice B's other Jenny comment B. regarding uh, Libra and books. Cause that's actually a video I'm going to be dropping here pretty soon is the book connection with Libra 
And, you know, it makes sense that library, the first five letters actually are Libra, you know. And so I think it has to do with the weights and measures of the scales and then the documentation of that math, uh, you know, and then how yeah. it just kind of like, you know, was brought into commerce and business and everything. Yeah, was, well, Demeter is related to law and statutes. Um, this, oh, I forget the, oh, the, Throw the there's book another name. Yeah, there's another name of basically uh, another god, and if you start looking at the the Greek gods and the Roman gods and all the all the different ones that hold a sheaf of wheat or are related to seed and stuff like that, they're all the same um, god. But yeah, as soon as you look at Libra, then you're dealing with um, yeah weights and measures, but also um, statutes and law, and that yeah, goes yeah. back to what Absolutely. I was talking about as well before when you're looking at um, the vesica pisces and then out of that vesica the vesica can be regarded as the law and then out of that law becomes um those those um three sort of geometric means if you like or processes of rationale so um and, you know, this goes back to, again, if you're looking at it in Mercury terms or Apollo, then that Apollo character is the, the god of harmony and um, music and ratio and, and those sort of things. They're all just the same sort of um, different ways of explaining the same sort of concept. Dylan yeah. texted me today that there's a an old author that he's checking out that made a really strong case that the Etruscans who are the precursors to the Italians or the Latins, their Apollo was the pole star. And I'll get into that and why that's etymologically sound later. But Mario, just to add a little bit of fuel to your fire about Libra and books, uh, Godfrey Higgins in Anacalypsis, it's in one of the early chapters. You might even want to check it out. He makes a very strong case that the origin of letters are leaves and that they named the letters after trees and that the shape, the way they did their writing originally uh, was potentially using leaves of different trees to be the actual letters of their system. Whoa. Yeah. And what do they call the sheets in a book? It's leaves, you know, leaves of paper. Yeah. 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 She has palms and, palm leaves and then you have the the tree of life that's all connected into the palm tree and mira all that stuff it's all northern symbolism again mira the mother of adonis was pregnant as a virgin with a divine seed was punished for her transgression by being and was turned into a tree the myrrh tree or the mira tree like frankincense and myrrh right and so her child, Adonis, was literally like a, a, a seed or a corn, a corn, cornu, <laughs> uh, cronus, the sun, before it became the wandering luminary, Adonis, which is a solar yeah. deity who goes, who's then taken into the underworld by Venus or Aphrodite so that he can gestate and grow into his beautiful self, rise again out of the cave and become the, you know, savior adonis solar hero so that's like <laughs> a very good example of the virgin in the tree right there oh yeah oh and yeah that, that's that's sort of the Not tree mention, the mirror palm tree. is basically mary mira maya mary all these same versions of the mother of the savior 
So the scientific name for the palm tree um, is related to the phoenix as well. Yes. So um, that's all involved in that sort of the, the palm leaf and palm Sunday and all that sort of stuff. Did um, you catch but, all yeah. the phoenix stuff in this, in the latter portion of this text of the Gnostic creation story? Um, I didn't get there. I <laughs> needed more time than. We might have to revisit more. it because honestly, I don't think we may even get to the uh, analysis of just some of the snippets of the text. And that's okay. Like, if we're just setting the stage for it, I would love to come back to a more detailed analysis, sort of shot like line by, not completely line by line, but analyzing highlighted points from the creation mythos and continuing this conversation. Because I think these found. I found myself just going for the foundations whenever I made the PowerPoint and that I realized now that's going to take a while just to even kind of get through that. Um, and I'm fine with it. I, I love this. I think that it's good to go slow and detailed because this is like a, a lifetime study for as much as we bring up, we're leaving a million points and connections on the table. And that's kind of the nature of this beast of the, the Lumashi, the constellation writing is that if we're talking about, double, triple, quadruple entendre, puns and homonyms and synonyms, you'll never get to the bottom of it. Everything is everything. It's this wild weave. So uh, I was speaking of which I'm on slide 13 (laughs) Uh, out of 22. And honestly, there's a lot of meat on these bones of the remaining slides. So I'm thinking I should get to it. And maybe power through a few of them and then we take some shots at it. Sure. All right. And cool. I'm definitely down to continue the conversation because I'm loving all of this. This is fun. Me this too. The most fun thing to talk about. You guys are the best for this conversation too. I really appreciate you, bros. All right. So now we're going to look at the archons. The archons are also the eons or the aeons. What is an archon in Greek? The archons in Greece were chief magistrates chosen from the most illustrious families to superintend civil and religious concerns. They were nine in number. So that's again from Webster's 1828. This is the back to Demiurge, meaning a subordinate worker. Archons were the rulers or magistrates. If you go on and look up the word magistrate in the same dictionary, one of the definitions of magistrate is God with a little g. So <laughs> the judges were gods. You, uh, magistrate means judge. So also chance the scotus is comprised of nine. Boom. Yeah. Nine magistrates. And, and also we're talking about the fasty calendar, nine months, and they would definitely uh, oversee civil and religious concerns, wouldn't they? You yeah. And in a 12 month calendar, nine months is a gestation period now. Yep. Yep. So the uh, point of this slide is to just highlight that whether or not there are archontic forces out there in the spiritual dimension, loosing us and setting us up into illusions and traps and white light tunnels and whatever, whether or not that exists, we're leaving that off the table right now, you know, from the perspective of what can we detect with our senses? Well, There are archons in the physical world. They do take the role of magistrates and rulers, right? And they are, (laughs) are they emanations from something? This is the other question. So what is an aeon or an eon? 
This is in the Platonic philosophy a virtue, attribute, or perfection. The Platonists represented the deity as an assemblage of eons. The Gnostics considered eons as certain substantial powers or divine natures emanating from the supreme deity and performing various parts in the operations of the universe. Now, in that text that we're talking about, these eons and emanations, like Lucas pointed out with his graphic, they are representing also these sort of musical principles of the seven, right? The nine, the 12, and even the eight. So there's, there's that. And we can talk about that. Maybe we'll get to that more next time. But the key word again is emanating. Emanating. So <laughs> just like here's, that's such a crucial word. Okay. Gnosticism is Kabbalism. That is a key takeaway here. It kind of pretends like it isn't, at least in the, the unlearned approach to it. Maybe not to those who are going further. They realize that this is also Kabbalism, which is great. But the, uh, we're not looking at the whole tree of life here. I guess if I go back, we could see the whole tree of life. These spheres of the 10 spheres are the archons or the eons. The Sephiroth, as they're known, say 10, right? <laughs> say 10. We have 10 of them. Anyway, Just the, like uh, fingers, yeah. so what's above the tree? That's the question. And in Kabbalism, above the tree, you have these three spheres. There's another trinity for you. The Ein, or Ein, the Ein Sof, and the Ein Sof Or. So these are the... Basically, the way it's described is that the ein is the nothingness, or the ein is like the beginning, the void. But it's also the pleroma in a in a way. It's like the ultimate highest sphere or god, right? It's undifferentiated. Yep. Undifferentiated. Yeah. So very much a pleroma idea. And then the ein sof is an emanation where Basically, the Ein or the I-N or the most high, the undifferentiated, then separates itself if in a way, like moves away from where it was, which makes no sense <laughs> when you think about it. Like if it's this undifferentiated infinity, how can it move anywhere at all? But it creates this void, this emptiness, and that's the Ein Sof. It's a womb. What is an emptiness? It's a womb. So you have your father, your mother. And then you have the Ein Sof R, which is, what is R? Or sun. Or is the sun. It means gold. And, you know, that would be like your trinity. You have father, mother, son, uh, creator, destroyer, and redeemer or savior. So things to look at it, the, the terminology here, and then I'll let you guys jump in. Um, the first manifest, first manifest Sephirah or sphere or aeon or emanation is Chokmah, wisdom. The first emanation in Gnosticism is Sophia, wisdom. Okay, the Gnosticism is Kabbalism. The emanation Keter, the divine will, is intermediary between the divine infinity, which is the Ein Sof, and Chokmah, wisdom. So. What that is saying there is that the key points to take away is we have emanations, we have wisdom, and we have crown or head or top or most high. We need to keep that idea in mind for when I go forward into 
uh, talking about these wisdom goddesses and what their names mean. So I'll let you guys take a rip at this. Now, since I put, went through three slides, who wants to go? Well, the this, the three emanations are exactly the same thing as I was sort of talking about with that Vesica Pisces sort of picture as well, which is like you have the, the undifferentiated and then it sort of, it, it, I tend to think of it like it bounds itself, it, it creates a ring around itself or it introduces pi, <laughs> if you like, and then it's the same as when you're drawing a, um, um, geometry, you start with a single point where you put the, the point of the compass down, then you do a circle. And then that, that limitation that it's bound itself. And then you move to the outer, outer edge of that and you do another circle. And so it's, it's really sort of just reflecting itself or move or shifting over. And then the vesica comes about from that. And so you can think of it not really like a, like in some sense, like the undifferentiated can't really do that in a sense, or it can. It's like the chicken egg, this sort of thing is that's um, beyond our comprehension in a sense. Um, but geometry does explain these actions very, very well um, in a rudimentary way. And so basically the point you're making is that this mythology is based on sacred geometry functions that we can actually replicate on two dimensional paper <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and how all, a three dimensional perspective can actually be brought out of this two dimensional. And because we can do that with sacred geometry, this philosophy love of wisdom has been derived but the point is that it's allegory for the geometry, not like a literal history of the creation and taking it as such is the problem. Like there could be some truth to this in, in a allegorical sense in terms of the birth of things or how alchemy or trinities operate in the realm across the micro macro scale of the fractal. But to like say that this allegory or the story, which is a description of sacred geometry is the capital T truth. And what really happened is to me, like it's so hypocritical because those same people will look at other mythologies of the world that have just as much validity to be historical and be like, yours is wrong. This is the right one. And it's because it becomes comfortable to take the posture of ultimate victimhood by making this a literal true story of being trapped in matter and an evil God and all that. It's a very yeah. comfortable posture. Yeah. Um, so the, I, I think the general idea is that um, sort of God is number in a sense. It's, you have to have this logical sense to, or a, um, you know, every, everything is based on that number, you know, of numbers. It really is a relationship. Everything's to do with relationships, and that's what number is at the fundamental is is relationships. And so, where would you, where would you begin with number? You know, you start at zero, and then you have one, and all that sort of stuff. And so, it's it's applying that same concept to how would things be created, and and that's basically it. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but no, you are. Um, and then the thing about the Trinity that is interesting though, to add to that is you have your Adam and Eve odd and even 
<laughs> mother and father. But the f- interesting thing is that uh, the Mercury or the Savior, the Sun, it comes out as a one or a negative one, metaphorically speaking, positive, negative, male or female, son or daughter, right? So there's a bizarre, there's sort of like a quaternity in the Trinity, just the same way as, you know, we have four seasons, but you could kind of look at them like three seasons or like you have uh, God, Holy Ghost, Jesus, but also this idea called devil, which, you know, there's like, there's, there's this three, four wobble going on as well here between like, and it sort of is demonstrated in the sacred geometry of how in the cube is also the triangle. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. The, the triangle is like the first thing to come out that is um, basically going to create a, a, a proper shape. Um, you, you just can't create um, a foundation from that way. And you can, I was just seeing it like the roof, of something um and then the four is like the the struts that would hold that roof up to create the house in a sense but um yeah so when you're when you're looking at when you're looking at through the geometry eyes the first thing you do to create these emanations if you like is to put the the point in the center um to create the first circle and so that that's that northern symbology that comes about because you can't create the first circle, the first boundary, without that first singular monad, that first point in the center. And so from there, then everything else gets created. So it's the first. Um, and a point, in, if you look at it in mathematical terms, it doesn't really sort of exist. It doesn't have a position because it's infinitely small, you know. So that's um, the I-N. The point is also the nothingness part. Yeah. The it's, undefined. It's, yeah. It, and exactly. that's because it has no relationship. No, it's it's just, no it, it gives everything else relationship to it. Everything's like geometry. Um, you can create those, the flower of life, and you can do it without any measurements, anything, because it just sort of emanates from itself. It doesn't need measurement as a precursor. It just needs a, another circle of the same diameter. Um, so it's it's almost like, when you think about it in terms of, you know, God creating itself, it's really just like I've got one thing, one circle, and then I'm just going to replicate it. And then all of this stuff just pours out of it. <laughs> it's just like you just set it, set it off down the hill and all of a sudden it grains momentum and it's, and I think nature's a lot like that in that, um, there's a perfection to how simple it is. It just follows a, a rudimentary of one two, three, four, but out of that sort of process and out of those relationships of other things doing one, two, three, four, um, there's a complexity that happens that is just beyond our comprehension. Um, So there's simplicity and complexity all at the same time. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to insert here, and I think this is really important to the point we're building on, is... The uh, Gabriel, what we're saying is there is no point. The point is no thingness. You can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to throw out there, Alpha Warrior made a good comment. In real physics, there never is a point or particle, but infinite mm-hmm. emanations. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's basically what we're saying here is that the idea of the point is conceptual. That it is, yeah, it's completely conceptual because it has no size. 
it has no relationship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that's that's where they get the ideas in Gnosticism, thing like you know, getting rid of the ego and things like that. You, you're basically going into that center point within yourself, and you're dropping away all the emanations of yourself and becoming one with the I am. And then from that point, I am, you come back I am very close. Right. Yeah. So there, there is a philosophy behind it and, and it does relate to that sort of North symbolism as well, where it's the crown of your head. And, and so there's a whole sort of science, if you like, that's been built up about that using geometry, using the understanding of how you would create shapes and mathematics and putting it into a context of meditation and those other understandings. Um, yeah. It makes a, it creates a path, uh, a maze, if you will, back to the self. You know, we spend so much time engaged in the, in the masses, in the collective, in the concept of other, in reflections and the hall of mirrors that this system of, uh, of, truth will lead you back to your center, uh, which is really beautiful. One thing I see, uh, LC, is the like, so you have the singular point, and then it sees ein self. It sees itself when the compass touches another location. And the line in between is like the oaf. It's creating a snake that, uh, what is that, circumference? No, not radius. Hmm. The that when the when the pencil hits the other part of the paper, there's a radius has been created. So you've got the one, now you've got the two, and it's seeing ein self. It's seeing ein self, and then the third stage is to ring that compass around, and it becomes becomes ein sofer, becomes a circle. Yeah, and that's what and that's what the sun's doing around that northern point. It is like the 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 pencil that's rolling around that that I am that initial sort of right. Um, so it's, yeah, the, then, they're sort of drawing. It's drawing that great circle. It's um, right, and now you hit the circle with four dimensional time, and when you splash four dimensional time onto the two dimensional circle, it becomes a slinky. And the slinky goes on and on, and therefore we are looking at a snake mm-hmm. or a sine wave. Yep, sine wave, snake. Yep, it's, it, yep, hundred percent. Well so, said. Uh, I just want to riff off of Ayn real quick. Uh, it's really interesting that Ayn right is a uh, Hebrew letter, and there is multiple correspondences for the Hebrew letters on what they mean. One of the other popular meanings behind Ayn is I, and that it means I. Which is really interesting. And it can this- be the letter I or the letter O or the letter um P? I think it can even nice. do Yeah, it can be I or O, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Which is your and- one zero yo. Right. You right. say ten. And so um this letter corresponds with the devil card of all cards in um, the tarot in the major arcana. And then also Ayn is a star in Taurus and it's one of the bull's eyes. So one is Aldebaran, which is one of the Royal stars. The other one is Ayn. So I, I think it's fascinating that it means nothingness and I, 
and is literally one of the stars of Taurus, which Taurus bull ox symbolism, obviously it's, it's a huge weave uh, that we can go down. Um, but can you actually go to the previous slide? Cause there was just one thing I was going to say related to Gnosticism is uh, Kabbalism, which I think, man, this conversation is really important, dude. I didn't know what your angle was to begin with, but it is so appreciated and it's all clicking, man. It I haven't even got to the sense. Polestar stuff yet, Mario. I just bet. wait. Yeah, just wait. No, my, my head's going to explode. Um, but there's a lot going on here. And there's even some other conversations around this whole entire topic that might be best, like, um, you know, put out there on like a rock fin or something like that. Uh, because Ooh. there's just a, there's a lot of angles here that are kind of controversial that we can get into about this whole entire weave, right? Um, I like your tone. Yeah, you know what I'm putting out there, right? So uh, anyway, so regarding the tree of life, you know, Malkuth is the lowest Sephiroth, and that's the one that corresponds with Earth. And so the idea is that Earth is the most descended place you can possibly be, adding to this whole entire idea of, you know, we live in a hell type system and everything else. So just thought I would throw that out there because that is right. one thing I am aware of the tree of life. So it's but almost like the Klepothic tree, which is the mere inversion where right, there's a whole other flipped. set of emanations under the Malkuth. So wouldn't those be the hell? So like if, uh, if pop culture Gnostics would see the Malkuth sphere as hell without even knowing that that's what they're referring to, because they don't understand the idea of emanations or eons anyway, as a Kabbalistic idea, they miss the entire Q, uh, you know, question, the Klepoth question. I don't know. Right, right. And that's actually, that's a really fascinating conversation to get into as well, because some of the people who are like the biggest proponents of the Klipothic tree of life and, or the tree of death and are well aware of it. Um, I know of certain authors that basically only want specific people to be aware of that, those kinds of um, teachings and, and whatnot. And they don't necessarily want it to be out there. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely agendas behind this whole entire thing. So, um, this so is rad. I got, I, got Mike's most, I, yeah. I want to make a point on Malkuth meaning earth. I believe that MK ultra relates to the term Malkuth and they've taken our standing. They've removed our footing. They've removed our connection to the earth. Grounding. The grounding. Yeah. Yep. Literally they put the shoe on. You got it. You got it. So MK of uh, of magic, of mind control. Of Shoe the, separates the above and below. The Maltese Knights, yep, they're the cutting idiot. off your standing. And so if Malkuth means Earth, could it be that MK Ultra actually means there are territories undiscovered, undisclosed, there's plus Ultra, more beyond undiscovered realms? Inner and Earth, too. Right. Inner, exactly. And so when everybody hears MK Ultra, and right now it's, we're kind of lighthearted about it. We're not so, our panties aren't in a wad, but a lot of people are like, ah, ah. but in fact, what if it's actually telling you great glorious news? What if MK Ultra is actually saying, there's more out there? Spread your wings, go fly. Well, the other aspect of cutting off your standing, cutting the tree at the base, that's the, that's Demi. Erg, that is half, and bind or clamp, cut the cord. The placenta is a tree of life. It literally looks like a tree. They cut that. Your standing is cut. Wow. Okay, hold on. I'm having a really profound thought. 
what if the placenta uh, altern- alternative program is designed to never give anybody connectivity to the land such that we have a sense perpetually, collectively, as, as a whole, we have a sense that we belong elsewhere. And so it's almost on some subconscious level driving people to this sense of, well, where do I belong? Where is my nation? Where is the earth under my feet? You know what else, Gabriel? My philology mind started looking at Malkuth and uh, LR interchange, Mar, so goddess. And then uh, K and T are interchange. Mar, Teuth. Teuth is Thoth. Don't know. Just a thought. That's not like evidence. That's just, you know, thinking about it. No, it does have a masculine, a feminine masculine. Yeah. I tend to think that the trail of life would have that um, reflection underneath that would go into the earth. And that would, if you're looking at it as a polarity, I guess um, the top would be, you know, the north and bottom would be the south. And then the earth where we sit would be the neutral ground. And that's how I tend to think. Um, the earth is as well it's a um, it's a position between two polarities like the sky above would be one polarity and the right below us would be another the Egyptian Ben Ben was shaped like that uh, that there were layers reflected underneath of basically underworlds and uh, you know could be (laughs) or this could all just be very philosophical and not literal that that's (laughs) We're getting into the we're getting into the frontier of what we can know versus what we maybe can't ever know, or maybe we can't know until we expand a little further in some capabilities. But what we know for sure in terms of above us is that we are in a type of sphere. There is this dome, there's this firmament, can't go beyond it. Is that a sphere? Is that a sephiroth? And if so. Would we be equally domed in by the bottom semicircle? I don't know. In which case, or maybe we can break through the the sphere in the. But at, at some point, <laughs> maybe there's a way to. I would that. think there's too much density. I would think that there's like a gradient of density. Yeah, I don't occurs, think we could exist but, uh, in terms of our frequency as uh, the the type of matter that we're in outside of that. So, but. but I'm, but it makes sense as we are Mercury, a Mercury character that would be live on Earth or Heart or that Mercury point, you know, that um, position between up and down. What's interesting you know, too makes is sense that to me. I don't know a lot about Cleopathic uh, Kabbalism, but I do know that this point right here, where there's this cross between Chokma and Binah. There's those are the two, right? Chokma is one, and the other one's Bina. Yeah. Mario, help me out. I bet you know. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking about Doth right there. The, yeah, this is Doth. is this hidden space. So I wonder, like, yep. wouldn't that mean that if this is sort of like the Keter of an above tree, or maybe it's what? not shaped that way, would the next thing below us be a Diat of sorts, but like the mere reflection of it? In which case, it's hidden. So. The Chance, underworld what, being hidden. I don't what know. Shape, what shape would you say that center da'ath position has? On the cross. What shape is that? Is that a kite shape? 
Is that oh, the shape? I know there's kite stuff. I know yeah. about the kite stuff. Is that Buotes? <laughs> is the void, the at, is it Buotes? Which is a kite-shaped constellation. Very Boom, headshot. All right, guys, we got to move further. <laughs> we gotta have, you, have you ever seen someone put the, like, um, Jesus on the cross in that, uh, in that picture there? Yeah. You haven't ever seen that? And then the Darth is like right at the center point in the heart, sort of thing. Yeah, there's a, there's quite a few variations, aren't there? Like mm. probably some we don't even know about. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's variations, and people are coming up with new versions like all the time too. There's a whole <laughs> underground like scene of people doing their own thing with it, so it's interesting. I actually have a sheet a friend gave me because Chance, you asked like what's above, you know, Kether, which I think interesting enough. Uh, you remove the K and it's ether you know, but um, that there's just more trees, basically, that it's just like trees up as above, so below. So it's just and like down. new rungs <laughs> upward and downward, you know? Right, because a tree has that fractality to it. What may to us appear to be a tree could on another scale of perception actually be a limb off of a bigger tree. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which exactly. it is, I think that that is, I, I mean... I've had psychedelic experiences that like pretty much demonstrate that there's a way of perceiving reality that way. <laughs> then what is experience? What is reality other than experience? But okay. Emanations and the Trinity. Let's continue on. I just want to go through some of the many versions of the Trinity, the Trinity where the Trinity Trinity are emanations from a one. So three forms, one God or thrice great. The pattern is creator, destroyer, redeemer. Redeemer is also savior. And that's also your, you know, alchemical trio as well. The sun is the first example of this in the material world with, with spring, summer, winter, corresponding to creator, destroyer, redeemer. Um, and when I go through these, I'm not necessarily saying that I have them written in the right order to would the three things correlate to the right thing. <laughs> I do know for sure that the Atman has three emanations, which is Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, that those are creator, Shiva, uh, destroyer, savior in that order. Interesting thing to point out, the VF interchange between Latin and Sanskrit. Vishnu is Vishnu. And there's a lot of really interesting gravy when you get into that because another switch between V and uh, B happens as well. So the bishops are the Vishops. <laughs> the uh as Dylan points out in his fourth book, you know, are the bishops the little fish of Vishnu? I think so. Because Vishnu is the the Jesus character, the Jesus fish, Vishnu, Vishnu. Now the uh Adam and Noah part. So basically there's this concept in Hinduism as well of Manu. Manu sounds a lot like the uh Gnosis word. You know, the Mandians, but Manu is basically like a, an all type deity who has Sama, Kama, and Prajapati. Prajapati, to me, that's basically Jupiter. And in fact, in Sanskrit, Pitar is father, P I T A R, Pitar, which is no different than Potter of Jupiter, Potter, Potter, father, you know, pattern. So Manu, basically the way that I understand these trinities is like uh, 
as you go through history, they're really all the same one. So it's like the oldest one is maybe Manu. And then you have no, or Adam is maybe older than that. I think Adam and Manu are basically the same thing. I'm saying Adam and Noah and Manu are the same mythological concept rather than literal. So Adam has Abel, Cain, and Seth. Noah has Shem, Ham, Japheth. Jehovah is three in one, Father, Holy Ghost, Son. You have three muses, which is interesting. Some systems, there's five or nine, but also there's uh, versions where they say that anything but three is heresy. And the ones most people know are three. There's three names that people are familiar with. Muses is fascinating because you have that root of MSH or MSE, Mem Shen He in Hebrew or Chaldee, which is where you get Moshe, which is the word for Moses, as we call it in English. It means anointed, which is exactly what they call the Savior, the anointed one, Christos. So Muses, Moses. It's the same word. <laughs> Moses means initiate in Hebrew as well. Anointed or initiate. Mem Shen He. So also we have in this Gnostic creation story we were looking at that we read, you have the Pistis Sophia. Pistis, Pisces, there's your fish again. Uh, and she's got three forms in the story. There's the uh, the big Sophia, the original emanation, Pistis Sophia. But then there's like this sort of other Sophia that is mentioned, who's kind of more in this material or the lower seven heavens, whatever the hell they're talking about. <laughs> uh, I think that might even be referring to the seven signs from spring through summer, like the same way the seven Asiatic churches are described as astrotheology for Aries through Libra. Because even though Libra is past the gate of winter, you're not really in hell yet during Libra. It's not like cold and dead yet. There's still some, you know, there's like seven and five encoded in that 12 that the, depending on what part of the world you live in, but where these systems were developed. So anyway, there's the other Sophia, there's Eve, and then there's Zoe or Zoe, which is fascinating as a mirror to Eve because both words mean life in a Hebrew translation. Uh, we'll talk, we've got, got to talk more about Eve. I'm taking my time. I should go faster through this. This seems obvious. In the, but in this Gnostic text we just read, there's also the Adam of Light, which is like the big Adam. And then there's little Adam, Eve, and Beast. That's another trinity. And the Beast is the serpent. And then you also have the trinity of Jehovah, Satan, and Jesus. That's another possible trinity. So those are just some uh, examples. I think that because this trinity, three forms, one God, Trimurti, has been somewhat occulted, even though Christians talk about the trinity. Um, as you know, this is on the right here. You see Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu, right? Brahma has multi heads, so in a way, Brahma is also Atman, he's kind of the big one. Just the way that the Father God is said to also be the Holy Ghost and Jesus, so he's part of the Trinity, but he's also the whole Trinity. Brahma is that way as well. We're talking about the same thing here, so in much the same way, Satan who is the destroyer principle. Um, and the thing that gets confused about the destroyer <laughs> is that it's necessary for the regen. It's also called the regenerator, which is a little bit different than a uh, redeemer. Not the same thing. 
the redeeming is when you like mark the acceptable year, the Lord, the new year, you hit the octave kind of like, uh, you go, ah, when you hit the octave in a scale, it feels like a release of tension. That's the redeemer quality. And then the destroyer is actually the winter and the regenerator because without the destroyer aspect, the, the construct would fall apart. The destruction is actually part of the regeneration. So anyway, the, uh, Modern day Christians get confused or modern day Gnostics get confused and they say Jehovah is actually the devil or the Demiurge, which he is conceptually, you know, (laughs) mythologically, but they're missing the point that Jehovah is not just the devil or Satan. Jehovah is also Jesus and Jehovah. It's a Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu thing. They're all, it's three in one. Just as you see the three faces on Brahma here. And there are even some older artworks that show uh, multi-faced Jesus, who is Jehovah. You know, they're just different forms of the one. So that's um, uh, emanations in the Trinity stuff. Just a little recap of them. The simplest way I've found to um, sort of view the Trinity and not just as a Trinity in the sun, but rather the, um, say, if you're looking at Shiva, Brahma and Vishnu, uh, Shiva would be the moon, um, Brahma the sun, and Vishnu would be that central point that they revolve around. And that was the monad, uh, the dark spot in the sky, the midnight, if you like, the um, top of the world tree. Oh, which so, is when when is the savior born? At that rest point. Rest point of the yeah. winter equinox. Yeah. And those so you, but the Trinity Rama, shows Shiva, up. In- Vishnu, they're called the Trimurti, by the way, which is basically the same word as Trinity. And and it does match up if you're looking at electrically as well, if you're looking at um the cathode and anode and all those sort of things as as well. Um and the actions that they take. Um yeah, one is destroyer gets destroyed <laughs> and one creates and gets built up um, and the mercury is the the ionic transfer between them so um, the same thing when you're looking at the, the sun moon and um, where what they move around and that connection between them mm-hmm. oh so, here's another good example Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego oh, yeah, that's another yeah. trinity they're all oh. over the place if you know what you're looking at yeah so <laughs> yeah that's a good one um so one thing i want to point out is ions like emanation ions i-o-n-s move that s you get scion and uh and scions are rulers and zion is a right. kingdom right and we have uh giza is at the 30th degree latitude and uh, Jerusalem is at the 33 degree latitude. So we've got this fixation with threes and we know there's three pyramids in Giza and they're working on the third temple out there in Jerusalem. So they got a real hard on for those threes. Well, and then you, you have that whole, ions. you have the whole uh, concept of addition numerically. I bring this up all the time, but if you add the numbers one through four, it equals 10. And <laughs> so that's probably one of the reasons why the Demiurge is associated with the number four, other than it representing foundation, stability, the cube, the square. Then we haven't even got to the freaking square, the Pegasus square. 
I don't know if we'll uh, even yeah. get there. The Pegasus Square is like so lit. We might just have to like go to it and say a few things real fast or dump the gravy. But anyway, uh, that four is also encoding the 10. Seven encodes the 10 because one through seven add the numbers. 28 reduces to 10. 10 is 10. 13 is 10 when you reduce that way with addition. So the number line is a trinity forever. One, two, three, one, five, six, one, eight, nine, one, eleven, twelve, one, et cetera, forever. That was some divine sound coming out of you right there. <laughs> that was magic. I uh, just want to point I've, out. I've too, repeated that so many times. I have it just memorized. So um, tree and three being very similar, right? Boom. Removing, headshot. Or uh, removing what the fuck. Excellent. Yeah. The tray and, uh, tray and, and then obviously uh, the roots, the trunk, the branches, you know, sort of thing. Um, and how that works with three. And so, and there's a lot of symbolism related to mercurial figures and trees. And, well, I think uh, part of that Trinity that is stuff. really more like the, the roots, the trunk limbs, and then the buds or the leaves because. Oh yeah. Or maybe flowers could be part of it. It could just be like the yeah. wood, the flowers, the leaves. But the reason I, I bring up that. the leaves, what's the name of the, what's the name of that one guy? Is it Bud? Budha? Buddha? Buddha, bud. Yeah, he's a buddy. Our buddy Buddha. I think he's a bud off of a tree named Mira. I'm sorry. Adonis is off of Mira. Buddha's off of Maya. Sounds like Mary. I think we're talking about the same thing. I think maybe Buddha is Jesus, is Adonis. Yeah. And and, I'm being silly, but our bud Buddha is a leaf, just like the leaves of paper in the book. Yeah. I like that picture. Lieber Potter, who is Bacchus, who is Jesus, who is Buddha, all one guy. Tree and North, um, they go together as well, like tree and true, true North, all those sort of things go together. Um, so um, definitely, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's part of it. I think the trunk is the Axis Mundi. I think every tree is an emanation of the Axis Mundi, personally. So I've been working on a project on my channel. Uh, for a while, and it's getting, it's too much. <laughs> hey, Gabriel, I hate to do this, but looking at the time, do you care if I keep going on my PowerPoint here? Well, we we just pop it think, up real quick. I won't go it, in depth. Can we go fast it, on it? Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, I'll go man. fast. Because it fits with what, what Mario just said, the tree, the three, the triune. So I'm working on the Enneagram, and I'm pretty sure this is like the key to everything, the secret to life and happiness and 42 and all that. So it's the Sophia. This is Sophia. This is head is thinking, feel is heart, and body is act. And you can see that it's integrated into the anatomical truth of fruits, trees, uh, all the divine mathematical nature of the place we're in. Um, So, yeah, I just thought I'd share that because while we're talking about the triune, this is not only the... uh, a personality matrix that's infinitely complex and beautiful, um, but it's also the way that the old calendar used to work, uh, which is something Elsie King and I have been chewing on for a long time. It's pretty profound. So I thought I'd throw that in while we're talking about the three, the tree. Come on over, slick dissident. Come get you some. Okay. And another thing that is mind blowing is in the vibrant call in line. Uh, and I love your Enneagram stuff. I'm excited for that video. But in the vibrant call in line, Jenny just popped the uh, chart for right now and I have to just flash it up real quick and you tell me what you see. Let's see. Yeah. 
Tell me what you see here. What have we been talking about this shape? See kite. <laughs> Looks like it. Yep. How wild. How wild. Big, big time. That's some wow. good synchro gravy right there. Big cosmic butt plug. <laughs> Stop. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Uh next slide. We're getting there. There's only a few more big etymology slides, but let's look at the mystery Mirianimus. That is the appellation of the goddess of wisdom granted her by Dylan Sicosio in book four of spirit world, a God's acre for winds of the soul. It means she of a thousand names basically is one of her appellations. So mystery Mirianimus is perfect. Uh, additional, you know, moniker to that canon. So goddesses of wisdom and mythology are replete. We're just going to name a few here. Pallas Athena, Minerva, Metis, as in Baphometis, and that's important, <laughs> very important to our entire conversation here. Whenever we explore hermaphrodites and the mother, who is also her own father, who is also her own son, uh, Maya, who is Mary, Maya Arche, or Arche, is an appellation or a epithet Arche for Maya, Maya, the mother of uh, Hermes or Mercury, and also the exact same name as the mother of Buddha. And in Hinduism, Maya with a Y instead of an I means illusion. So (laughs) is is Hinduism maybe like Gnostic? If Maya is illusion and it's also the mother and Buddha? I think so. Hey, speak of the devil. Dylan just popped in the chat. Yeah, three hours, dude. We've been going hard. (laughs) Uh, Going hard in the paint. So anyway. Some other goddesses of wisdom, Isis, Neith, Sia, Sashat, Saraswati, Gayatri, Savritri. And these are just naming the ones that are specifically feminine. The key things to take away is that they're first mothers, bestowers of speech, as in they give birth to logos and writing, knowledge, etc. And the really big words that we're going to break down here are palace and archi. The the rest could also be broken down, you know, but those are the ones we're going to get into. And by the way, speaking of the fact that there's a big Sophia and a little Sophia metaphorically in this creation story of emanations, isn't that what this looks like? This is an actual statue. I'm sure somewhere famous. Uh, I can't remember where it was take the picture was taken, but that's Athena, Pallas Athena, and she's holding like a little Athena. <laughs> Anyway, palace, palace is the word we're going to get into and RK epithets of the goddess and the pole is what I'm calling it here. So remember our Lumashi constellation writing divine wordplay used to encode and deduce titles of the deities. I didn't really mention that in the first uh, time looking at Lumashi, but one of the things they did with this is by being able to look at like a constellation, cross reference it. <laughs> Where else do you cross reference? things or cross analyze you do that in court you cross analyze the language that you're speaking and then the language of like another country or your new ruler if you just got conquered and you cross reference it between multiple languages multiple alphabets and the symbolism and the shape and the number and all the things related to it across the whole spectrum of dimensions of meaning and by doing that they would deduce titles 
of the deities. And that's why these deities would have like, you know, Lou of the uh, Irish had like a hundred fucking nicknames, right? Why is, why would that be? It's because they do this process of Lumashi where they're getting double, triple entendre. And that's how they're even coming. So they're coming up with these epithets for their gods and goddesses. And then out of that, they're designing the actual story of the mythology that they give to us. Because no matter what, even if you've just like, even if you've got uh, a shape in the sky as a constellation and you're like, okay, that's a plowman, that's a scales, whatever the relate, what's the relationship between this and that? What's the story? How do you come up then with a story of like, you know, Perseus cutting off Medusa's head. They're doing it through this concept of epithets. And so they're deriving those from this language of, uh, context and multiple meanings in words and symbols, etc. So I hope that's making sense. This is so crucial. This priestly pun craft. <laughs> and through it, we are all pun I shed. As in we've been we've been given a specific, you know, diction of Aries meaning to things, one meaning. This is your dogma, your dogma, your mom dog. That's called a bitch. It's a total bitch. It's your Medusa, you know, it's a total bitch to get just one dogma meaning about a concept of God and mythology when the priests are over here with hyperdimensional sigils <laughs> that they're throwing at your psyche that also recognizes this multiple logos meaning factory, but you don't know it. So like, <laughs> okay, so all this makes sense. I hope like this, uh, this is crucial. Your pun I shed, you've shed the pun. If you take everything literal with just one meaning, you've shed the entire pun and it's punishing you in the reality by completely limiting your perception and the scope of your ability to recognize fucking sorcery, <laughs> actual mind control sorcery. Yeah. So, but they, they also, they do that, but they also change the names um, to make sure that they end up with the correct gem, gematria. Yeah. Um, and and they're too. also creating the stories to make sure that they end up with the correct um Geometry, because some of the stories are actually um, outlining. Say, if you take um, Jesus and the and the fishing um, and feeding of the five thousand or whatever, um, they're allegories for geometric um, processes. Uh, so, once you know how to start the geometry, then the story tells you how to create those um, geometries that they're talking about. That is another layer of it. Yeah. So. Geometry, number, ratio, language, all these different pieces of the puzzle. And because there is like this magic to it almost of this thing, I think this is why they actually were believing that they could derive history of the world from doing this process. So that what they came up with out of this was logos or wisdom and they're finding out the truth. And then they're misunderstanding that and making it real history because they think it must be true if it's up there and it's in our speech because our speech is inspired by these gods and goddesses of wisdom. We only have speech because of, you know, your Saraswati or whoever it is for your particular culture. So let's just look at these two words. Palace, palace Athena. Palace means wisdom. Okay. It also means a fortress and we won't go there, but like, 
that's not even part of my dig here. <laughs> but there is a god and goddess of fortresses. Their name are Kronos and Rhea. Anyway, palace, wisdom, in Hebrew, pala means wonder or miracle. Okay. Pula, which is almost the exact same as pala. And remember, there aren't even verbs in, or uh, vowels in Hebrew. So it could also be, it's basically, we're talking about pl hey or P-L-I-N. It's almost the same thing. And sometimes I-Ns get translated as E. So there's that. So pala, wonder or miracle. Pula, distinguished or set apart. Pool or pool. It's again, it's basically pula in Greek. It means gate or door. So what does a, a gate or door do? It distinguishes one area from another. It sets things apart. And what does even, what does logos do? What does, what does language do? It gives you the ability to say this, not that. Okay. <laughs> where does the, where does the speech come out of? Your mouth, right? That's a gate. <laughs> it's a gateway of your body, of your body temple. So pula in Greek is gate or door. Pola is Hindi for gate or door. The Latin version of this pula from Greek is portus. And the Latins just add the, the U as ter- termination, but P-O-R, L-R switch, poor is pole. Okay, it's the same thing. Same root. Let's throw the word philological on here. <laughs> Palological. Palological, yeah. Palological. You, basically, yeah. Yeah, it is. 100%. I mean, you can make that assertion for sure. Okay, and uh, what about Apollo? Apollo, who I mentioned the Etruscans are worshiping as the pole star or recognizing as the pole star. Well, that's pole. exactly who he was. Yep. Pole, Pallas, Pala, Pula, Pole, Apollo. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so and he was a Braxis as well. So. 100%. So is the, uh, is the pole star a gateway or a door? I think it's seen as such. I think it's seen as the opening or the eye or the oculus to the eye. Right? Yeah. Top of the <laughs> head. It's the top of the head. It's the top of the head. What do you know? So, okay. If it's the top of the head, what does Arche mean? Another epithet of the goddess. Well, in Greek, it means beginning, origin, or head. And what do we call the rulers? We call them heads of state. The archons of the physical world, the magistrates, they're heads. RK, okay, so Royal Arch, the high point of the Zodiac. And in fact, the Septuagint and Philo use the word Arche or RK to mean wisdom, head and wisdom. Oh my God. <laughs> go figure. Yeah, go figure. And an Ark is a boat. But back to your Argo, Ark signifies the Yoni, the mast is the, the phallus, the gate and the pole. The phallus and the palace. Same word practically. That's your vesica. The two polarities coming together, the gate of life, the opening through which the, you know, divine spark jumps across the gap and new life is formed, right? So life comes from a gate and a pole. We're looking at the mystery of the lingam and the yoni, and we're looking at a goddess that is a hermaphrodite. <laughs> You know, Aphrodite with a beard. And uh, I bet that I should pause here. There's more, but (laughs) I bet that there's probably some responses to these etymology digs I did here. 
Well, it's it's yeah, it's basically it's the Mercury character once again. It's at the center of top of our head, which is in if you put the the head as the dome that we live in. Well, that's the center of the that's the North Pole. It's the top of the tree, the tree of life. Our our pole, which is our um, spine. And think about so, what is what is it called whenever something can reproduce without a uh, other partner? Asexual. Parthogenesis. Yep. Par Paul. L R nice. switch. Par and Paul. Nice. Mm. Okay, I want to throw something. What is on uh, also Paul is hidden. Right. Uh, Saint Paul is the rock that the church is built on. Yeah. I'm sorry, Saint Peter. My bad. Um, Peter, which is uh, a pun that established the entire fucking ecclesiastic order. Yes. That's that, a pun. On this rock, I, I will build my church. That is the justification for the Vatican. They give that as the justification for their which existence. Is cube. But there's actually a, uh, there's a, a three formed God in China called San Pao, S A N P A L, San Pao. What? How do you say saint in Spanish? Saint, right? <laughs> it's San. San Pao. Saint Paul. San Pao. They have it in China. Thank you, Dylan, for that info. Nice. So, so I got a quick riff I want to throw on the record while we're talking about this because it kept coming to my mind as to, to in these three hours. Imagine this. All these metaphors we're talking about also being consolidated in the process that is used to make fire. You take a boat, it's like a a piece of wood or a stone, and you suspend a stick with that piece of wood, and then you take a bow with a piece of string, and you wrap it around that stick, and then you rub it back and forth over and over. And that's how you spin the stick to get a spark to start fire, to bring forth life. That's a virgin birth. The, sh- the stone that is upside down, that's the ship. That's, the, that's a vessel. The two sticks that you're rubbing together, that's the reverse sticks. It's the reverse sticks. You're going back and forth. The word river is five, 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 five. Reverse sticks. And when you reverse the sticks, the sticks are making an X. You're crossing over. And you're bringing forth the arc of life. It's the Kai row. You're the, the row, rowing down. the boat. The Kai is the X or the key. And that's the monogram of Christ, key row. How are you going to get anywhere in life if you don't know how to start a fire? <laughs> Dude, that is awesome. I love that. That's re- really cool. And actually, I think it relates to Gemini because Gemini, we know them as twins, right? Uh, we have the Gemini symbol, which is a symbolic gateway. But there's actually uh, at least one group of people that don't see twins in the night sky. They see fire sticks. And so as in sticks that you rub together, you know, and then Gemini, it's really interesting because the twins are dangling their feet in uh, the Milky Way galaxy. So which would be like the river of heaven, you can argue. Right. And so there's river symbolism tied to Gemini. And then there's this gateway thing tied to Gemini and these fire sticks. So. That's awesome, dude. And also, too, with Gemini, they say that, or at least, you know, the most basic way I can break it down is when there's two energies that come together, two people, as an example, there's going to be friction. That friction can lead to beautiful things, amazing things. It could lead to life, you know, or it can come to a head. And, you know, that's part of the uh, Gemini symbolic arc is that 
the dark twin will kill the light twin. So it comes to a head. So that friction is great. Spark. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the fire uh, after the spark. Yep. That's what current is. Current is resistance. Right. In electrical terms. And it's two things coming together or, or forcing. So, yeah. I think we well, just uh, a, a primordial light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that previous slide, dude, is killer. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that, putting that together. I'm learning a lot. I've I've taken several screenshots, and I have a whole page of notes here. Um, oh, the cool. other I'll thing, share I'll just... the slides with anybody on Telegram. I'm actually going to expand this. I'm sure, but because I think I could give this as just a solo presentation on other shows without. All yeah. the incredible context you guys bring to it, which some of it I need to go back and watch and take note of. But anyway, <laughs> let's jump forward. Um, okay. Eve is Sophia. This is the argument I'm making. And it makes sense because Sophia creates Eve in the whole mythology of this UNESCO United Nations translation. Thank you, UN. <laughs> okay. So we're all familiar with Yad Hey Vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton. It's often and most commonly transliterated as the yod is a y, hey is an h, the vav is a v, and the next hey is an h. But all those letters could also be transliterated and were pronounced in an ancient, in a more ancient time, more like i e v e or i e u e, as u and v have a lot of interchangeability as well. Just look at the look at the ada glyph um, in. I'm sorry, uh, the Upsilon glyph in Greek, but right on. So we're talking about YHVH, the four-letter name of God, fire, earth, air, water, and it's transliterating. And they don't show you this one because it would be too much of a giveaway. They give you an unintelligible, unpronounceable YHVH. They don't give you I-E-V-E. Too much, it's too on the nose. <laughs> too on the nose to find out that uh, you're... Yod Hey Vav Hey is fucking Eve. <laughs> it's pronounced more like Yeve or you if the uh, V is a U. You, which is exactly how you pronounce the letters J E W without the hard J, where most cultures wouldn't use a hard J. They didn't have a hard J. So the father is the mother. Yehovah, Yod Hey Vav Hey is Yeve, is Eve. This is a direct quote from this text that we're analyzing. Now Eve is the first virgin, the one who without a husband bore her first offspring. It is she who served as her own midwife. For this reason, she is held to have said, It is I who am the part of my mother, and it is I who am the mother. It is I who am the wife. I who am the virgin. It is I who am pregnant. It is I who am the midwife. It is I who am the one that comforts pains of travail. It is my husband who bore me, and it is I who am his mother. Her son is her lover. This is a constant theme in older mythologies. And it is he who is my father and my lord. Her son is her lover, is her father. Sounds like maybe this is not fucking literal. I don't think nature works this way. (laughs) Maybe we're talking about a three in one here. Anyway. It is he who is my force. What he desires, he says with reason. I am in the process of becoming, yet I have borne a man as Lord. And you know, we really ought to just analyze this text later. There's all this stuff about Yaldabaoth 
creating things from verbal expression. Ver ball bail ver bail <laughs> ver bail true ver is true anyway that's a whole nother side weave but this right here is crucial and it says specifically in this text that eve creates adam and that's the same as uh in some aspects of the targums as well adam wasn't god didn't create eve out of the rib of adam eve created adam out of her own virgin birth. So, and the, so is Adam Adonis here? Because another thing that happens in this text is Eve, then after this, she goes and becomes the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. I don't remember which. She goes into the tree and becomes the tree, just like Mir, Mira or Mir, because who mother of Adonis, who is Adam, who is Mercury, who, who is the sun, whatever. <laughs> All, it's ridiculous that the people that believe in the whole pop culture Gnosticism don't even read this. And Christians don't all read this text either because it's apocryphal or forbidden or whatever. But, you know, if it's, most, it's so if most dogmatic Christians realize that the Yod Hey Vav Hey, which they probably don't even know Yod Hey Vav Hey, if they just go to a regular mega church worship, they don't even know that phrase probably. They might know Jehovah but they mostly get God and Lord. They don't know that YHVH is I-E-V-E. And so the I is also looking a lot like an L, the letter L, which is interesting because we're talking about this Gnostic pop culture mythos and the, the world has fallen and Eve, L, Eve means life in Hebrew. Okay, so the life of L is evil. <laughs> Your Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Jehovah is a demiurge. He created a fallen world construct and it's all terrible and bad and you're a slave to it. You know, it's right there as a concept in evil. You know, if you read it from right to left, the way that you would read Hebrew to us, it looks like, anyway, that's beside the point. I also want to point out though, Bacchus, who is Jesus, and that's provable through the uh, the monogram of Bacchus being the one they used to make the name Jesus. And that's all I've talked about that before. I'll just leave that there. If we could, you know, we were already really far in the stream. Bacchus was worshiped as a serpent called Eve in some places. The son is the mother is the father is the three in one, the divine androgyne, hermaphrodite, Aphrodite with a beard, Mercury with breasts, Baphometis. And they're That's sort of a, detailing a, a slam dunk um, weave right there. I feel like a um, an eternal system. That's what they're really sort of showing or expressing is that the system is eternal. And I tend to agree. <laughs> yeah, it's like hermetically sealed. These self-referential, right? Snake eating its own tail constantly in all the stories. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is really interesting. A few months ago, um, I was looking into some older antique artworks um, of the elements, showing the elements in four different pieces. And Earth actually is a hermaphrodite. It's like an old man with boobs. And I was just like thrown off when I saw it, <laughs> you know, because that's not what I was expecting for Earth. Uh, but obviously, I'm, I'm aware of some of the symbolism, but basically it speaks to everything you just kind of laid out there, Chance. Um, so kudos, man, on all this stuff. It's great. That was a Real good cool. one. 
All right. So if we want, I'll just pop through the last three slides to get a start master builder 22. Um, these oh. ones I don't have as much to say about. Oh, Gabriel. Yeah. I got okay. one quick thing on the leaves. So mm-hmm. leaves, it looks like an L it does bring forward the image of leaves. It, leaves. It, yeah. Leaves. And what do they cover themselves with Gabriel? Leaves. They're covered in leaves. And there's even one point in um, Milton's Paradise Lost where Adam and Eve are both getting the uh, all the terms of the agreement. They're actually getting the prehistory that they need to know if they want to survive in the realm. And Eve, she's like, this doesn't, this kind of bores me. I got work to do. And she leaves. She walks away from the conversation. And because of that, she doesn't get the warning that would have saved her. And she goes off by leaving. She goes off ignorant and she learns the hard way. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting that the leaves is, again, many layers of puns. It's the so many entendres. Uh, it's, it's yeah, man. Yep. And you know what the Welsh word for apple is? Affle, like a fall. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Yep. And here we are going into the nice. fall. And all, the, all you did there was turn the A's into e, the E's into A's and the V into an F and V switches with F between different languages. So Yeve becomes Affle where the I is now an L too. So Affle, right. Yeve, it's actually like in a sort of pun way, it's the same word, a fall, apple. And how does the apple fall? The umbilical cut. The umbilical cut is the falling apple. I think so. Yeah, so my last slides are just a couple of examples of uh, some stuff I just took directly from this podcast, this video with uh, John McHugh. Some of they're really his slides, and I'm not really like familiar with the phonetics and the, the language system of cuneiform or the ancient Mesopotamians, but I just love these examples because if they are correct, and this is just like this is getting us into the uh, Lumashi thing. If these are correct and true, which I haven't run down the receipts on them yet, but I think that the guy was speaking my language and I'm pretty sure that he's probably correct. I'm going to get his book and I'm going to look things up for myself. But this is the Pegasus Square constellation is what he's depicting here. The Pegasus Square, where's that at in the sky clock? It is in the winter half of the sky clock. It is like the dry land raised up out of the waters of chaos. Okay. So this is the Garden of Eden, the Pegasus Square. Here's an example of what this pun stuff really is doing. You have Gan, the Pegasus Square, called Gan. Uh, it has multiple names and multiple languages and all that. So you have garden encoding in it, encoded in it. You have field. You have in the middle. You have of and forbidden and fruit. So basically... This is his point from the celestial code of scripture. And like I said, I haven't chased down the receipts on it, but he's saying that you can out of, in the Mesopotamian and Hebrew systems, out of the Pegasus square derive fruit in the middle of the garden forbidden. Like that is what we're talking about in terms of the, the uh, scripture in the stars and the Lumashi. I think that's a perfect example of it. And Oh Yeah. I love that, dude. Can I say something real quick about it? Yeah, 100%.
Okay, so Pegasus, the square of Pegasus is just above Pisces. It's literally between the two fish of Pisces as they split. And so Pisces, the symbol for Pisces, looks like the cross-section of a Taurus field. And so to me, I think that we are talking about exactly what he just said, you know, the Garden of Eden. It's a field. And so symbolically, too, the place we live in is a gigantic field. What kind of field? There's several ways of looking at that, right? You know, like a frequency field or like an actual literal field, a plane of land, plot of land, something like that. And I just want to say, if people want to learn more about this myth, uh, I'm curious if he knows about this book, Babylonian Star Lore, because if you look into the Pegasus constellation or Pisces, he gets into exactly what he just outlined there in that slide. So nice. really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I might want to even talk to this John McHugh guy. Actually, I know I want to talk to him. I just need to read the book. First, he was on another show, Gnostic Informant. So he does podcasts. I would love to, I would love to pick his brain because I'm not as well versed in the Mesopotamian. I mean, cuneiform is a fucking mess in terms of a language. So many abbreviations, so many characters and possibilities, like, uh, so easily forged. <laughs> now that goes for what we're talking about today, too. I mean, I hold that it is maybe even more likely than not that this is a forgery in terms of uh, the translation we're given from the Nag Hammadi that we're looking at from Gnosis.org, from the UNESCO, United Nations, such a joke. But, you know, that's going to be true for all the, pretty much all the scriptures. There's very few instances of something where you can be sure that it's authentically old. You can even fake the oldness of something. So I'm with our guy Dylan on the idea that, like, you really need to be looking for coins and uh and architectural artifacts with engravings and things of that nature are a better bet for deriving evidence statues old ass statues good way to break into symbolism but either way um the the language seeds of language that carry on to this day that we still use and speak with and the ways that those language has relationship to each other and interchange letters and whatnot that philology aspect also think that that's harder to conceal in terms of um, the truth, truth that you can dig out of there. So if you have evidence of it's in the astrology, it's in the language philologically, and you find like an old ass coin that has that symbol combination, three strikes, three strikes, you know, and that's kind of the, the way to do this type of, to make these assertions. Otherwise, like you got one strike or two strikes, we're still, it's still conjecture, but if you get three or more, I'm feeling pretty good about it being, <laughs> you know, what it, what we're saying it is. And I try to do my best to indicate when something is more just like, this is a thought it's a one strike, but just to like, we don't have to break this down super hard, but you know, we look at Aries as a Ram, but it's a Sphinx slash Carabim to the Mesopotamians. and the flaming square in front of the garden of Eden, the flaming turning sword. That's also part of that's to the actual East of uh, the Pegasus square. Apparently like that's one of the interpretations of these constellations. So old star maps are also going to be really helpful. I really am interested to learn the Mesopotamian versions of constellations because he's saying that Aquarius is Yahweh, Yahweh as well. Um, you know, well, so this whole breakdown is pointing out how like you have a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the eastern gate of Eden put there by Yahweh. He's saying that that's in 
the star scripture as well. And, you know, looking at it from a slightly bigger picture, you have the Pegasus square as an arc. <laughs> and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the arc that uh, Upnapishtim, who is Noah, survived the flood, which is the winter half of the Zodiac. It was a square shaped arc, which makes no sense in a literalist interpretation. But whenever you recognize that the Pegasus square is like dry land in the middle of an, an island in the middle of this big ocean of chaos, then it starts to make more sense. And so he's pointing out the, uh, you know, kind of the story of the relationship between these constellations and why we have things like the deluge myth, which permeates into all these other scriptures as well. So it's all basically one big system that gets modified and remixed constantly, just like, you know, with music today, <laughs> you got the same, you know, chord progressions and musical archetypes repeated ad infinitum with different instruments and with sampling and pitch changes. But it's like, there's only so many notes in this chromatic, chronatic 12 thing that we're uh, we're working within. And I'm excited to, do, to put out that music episode later where we question like, is there, can we get outside of that box in, in terms of music? And would that affect our consciousness on other levels? And yeah, so I feel like it, we just passed the three hours, 33 minutes. Illuminati confirmed. We can start moving towards the wrap up. Uh, you guys, thanks for hanging with me so long. <laughs> Who knew 22 slides would take this long? I did because it's the four of us and this was phenomenal conversation. I feel like mission accomplished with my intention for what I wanted to present and for what I knew you guys would bring to the table. I do see that there's one more thing. Gabriel popped into the telegram. Uh, let me grab that because I actually wanted to show this image as well. Beautiful choice. Uh, so Gabriel, you want to take us away on your last slides here? Yeah, buddy. So Mario, uh, this one is, uh, thanks to you. I definitely owe this one to you, man. Like, you know, I love that you've brought that North star into the picture, you know, to, to give us a starting point, a focal, a focal point. So, um, a lot of what we are all doing, I think, is developing an internal star map. And that becomes our decoder ring for interpreting the uh, simulacrum that we are given. And, you know, a lot of uh, what I think we're trying to do with the Four Horsemen program here is to break out of that uh, what is called the victim stance that is so very uh, prolific in the Gnostic movement. Um, but one thought I want to say is I think that Gnosticism is just freaking hardcore honesty. It's just Stoics speaking as much truth, as powerful of truth as they can, and keeping it alive forever. Um, and it hurts. It sucks. It sucks to find out that, yeah, things are, things are not all peachy keen like the collective wants you to, you know, go along to get along. Things are rough, but that is no fucking excuse to quit. That's for damn sure. That's all the more excuse to work harder. You know, I think of like no sis has the word sis. Makes me think of Sisyphus. You know, it's even the song of Sisyphus. G-N-O. 
S-I-S. In reverse is the Sis song. So Gnosis is the song of Sisyphus. And yeah, it sucks we're here. We're pushing that rock up all the time, constantly. And when we get to the top and we think we're out, we go to sleep, we wake up in the morning, we're at the bottom of the hill, we got to start all over again. We are the, the herdsmen. We're the, the plow. We're the worker, you know? And that just is what it fucking is. And um, uh, so get over it. Fucking strap on, you know, and get get on board and do the war, internal work. So that image that we were showing, I'm, I'm ranting at this point. It's my uh, form of appreciating what we do. It's a good rant. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, my form of appreciating what we do is like uh, decoding the information that is in the headlines <laughs> and uh, running it through the ciphers that we are so familiar with here. So this is the pole star uh, with the Big Dipper going around it. Um, we know that in the news on 8-8, which is called the Lion's Gate, that they ran a huge psychological operation on the masses, regardless of which side you uh, you even pretend to attach to. That is an incredibly magical date. That is the date when the summer is pouring out the abundance. You can see this cup is pour- is pouring, the ladle, the gravy. It's nice and hot. Come and get it because it's we're in the pinnacle of the season and it's going to it's going to run out in the fall. You see how the cup is empty now? And then in the winter there's no way there's absolutely empty. There's nothing at all left. So at 8-8, the Big Dipper is pouring out all the whatever, the the vril, the louche, the potentiality, the pleroma maybe. Um, And here, the lust card, she's holding up her cup. And on 8-8, the holding up of the cup is meeting the dipper halfway so that the energy of the cosmos can fill the spell. And so 8-8 is an 8 by 8 checkerboard of the Masonic Hall. It's the checkerboard, 8 by 8 It's also 88 keys on a piano. So that is setting the stage for a lot of spells to come down in the fall. Um, and so uh, I just thought I'd share that because I ran that through the spiders a while back, but you weren't there, Mario. So I thought I'd drop that on you. No, that's awesome, dude. Uh, I love that, that you're keeping track like this. Um, and the the dipper pouring everything out makes a lot of sense. Obviously, uh, the whole cup chalice symbolism with that card is like very, very significant. Also, she's riding a seven headed beast. Reminds me of the seven stars of Ursa Major and Minor and everything else. So, yeah, man, I'm into it. So, and so we haven't even really broke down the text that we referred to tonight. So, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Seven heavens and emanations and aeons. Like, I'd be very curious to hear what you guys decipher out of that. You know, if this subject needs more attention, I mean, we did crush pretty hard tonight. <laughs> right on. Yeah. So, my thought is maybe the pun in this picture that I'm trying to bring forward is the plow, row, ma. This is the plow of the Rome of Ma, you know? Um, wow. Right. Which is, it's and, got the and Roma is Amor, which amor. is love. Roma right. backwards is Amor, love. I love it. And Rome has the whole um, built upon seven hills, right? Isn't that oh, a fucking thing? Fucking A, bro. Fucking A. You know, yeah. Yeah, that's the summer constellations or the spring and summer, the, the good half. 
the good portion of the zodiac. Right on the eighth, with twelve emperors. Right, because on the eighth, you're going, you're over the hill. And who, who founded it? It was Troy, Troyans, three Thrysons, Threeans, <laughs> Trinity. So I guess uh, closing rant is, um, uh, you know, in this dive, you know, if we find out that the Archons are just fucking numbers and that all of the Gnostic complaining is, why can't I make two plus two into five? I'm out of here. Fuck this. Well, that's pretty fucking petty. (laughs) But yeah, if Archons are just fucking numbers and you can't break math, Get over it. Let's move on. I love it, man. I love it. <laughs> nice flash bomb into Plato's cave there. We think it's enough light for a rave. And here's your disco ball. <laughs> Did you want to show this? That was next in the in your queue there. <laughs> That's cool. Nice, nice. So these are uh, these are some of my uh, discoveries in the 10 em- em- emanations. Um, I made this a long time ago. You know, when I was doing my red book, uh, I just <laughs> you young in <laughs> bust out my pencil, make 10 circles and put the math down and start seeing what it tells me. So just hearing the word 10 emanations, that is a seed. And when I put it in your mind, you could think for days, weeks, months, some people got to go years thinking 10 emanations, 10 emanations. And then they go and they start playing around with what that might mean. And then they come out and they discover that it means fucking nine eleven twin towers. Uh? <laughs> Ten emanations encodes nine eleven. That's pretty rewarding. That's pretty damn rewarding. Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought I would share that and encourage people to get out there and apply. You know, put the fucking pencil to the paper and get a bunch of erasers. You're gonna need them. <laughs> yeah man that's how you come up with the the weaves that you do you just throw shit against the wall you know what it makes me want to show before we go you know a real uh, a really great share from davin earlier today it's not very long okay so this is basically like the math of how to figure all this stuff out <laughs> there is a mathematical formula to this. So here we go. Share. All right. All right. Today we're going to talk about how we can find out and how much we can find out and what it takes to get there. So first we have to decide how much do we want to find out? So let's say in this case, I want to find out at a level of seven. Okay. So I find that level on my graph. And I come horizontally to my gradient line. Where it intersects with my gradient line, I'm going to come straight down to where it intersects with my fuck around line. That there is going to tell me how much I have to fuck around to find out what I need to find out. See, as you can see, the more you fuck around, the more you're going to find out. And also, if you stay down here and you never fuck around, you'll never find out. So I hope this lesson is helpful. See, as a whiteboard <laughs> teacher, Gabriel, I thought you'd appreciate that. I love it. I Hell love yeah. It. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Anybody got any closing thoughts to round this out? 
Yeah, you know, um, something that I've been wanting to bring up the whole entire time um, is that I recently am coming to uh, this new conclusion or thought that perhaps, you know, we're not supposed to draw the earth. Um, I think it's very interesting that in Islam, you're not supposed to draw Muhammad. Uh, but I recently learned that actually that applies to um, older beliefs that you're not supposed to draw humans at all. Um, and so to me, that's really curious and interesting. And I was thinking about the correspondence between the human body, our terrain uh, and the terrain of the earth. And I'm like, maybe there's like a correspondence with you know, are we even supposed to be drawing these things? You yeah, because when you uh, make a map of your anatomy and a belief about how your health works in a construct and a model, do you then live in a modeled form? As in, it's described in this text we're analyzing where the spirits of the upper beings are put into modeled forms. You know, because you then, you know, then things get pretty spotty. <laughs> model well put whenever That's you're it, living in a model and not in the truth which is the undefined the point you know exactly the inner, the inner undefined infinity yeah 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 no you totally got it subject to the nocebo effect where like you can actually harm yourself by your belief in how this model of your anatomy functions like germ theory and now you've got the coronavirus and all this shit i was thinking the same thing you know we're taught in school that we live in the 3d do we you know, uh, what, what's really going on with these models, you know, and what models should we adhere to and, and just believe in and everything else. And so um, so that's something that I just wanted to get across is like I'm starting to think that maybe it's almost a fool's errand to try and map out the earth and that you it's maybe something that you're not even supposed to do um, almost philosophically, because I don't know if you can actually draw the damn thing. I don't know if it's even the possible. map will never be the terrain, no matter what. It's always a model. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that I just wanted to express real, real quick since we're talking about matters relating to what is Earth, cosmological stuff and everything else. Um, Interesting but, too is like as soon as you have a model, your whole scale, you know, your weights and measures of what is and isn't fair or accurate is based on that model. Just like in music, the key mm. that you select is the modal center, you know? Right. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. But it's not actually the whole of music or the whole possible range of vibrations within the monochord. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's limiting. So there's that final thought. And then also just want to say, of course, grateful to be here. Uh, this was way more profound and significant than I expected it to be. I didn't have like many expectations but honestly dude uh, you killed it and you're making me think about a lot of things. I am reevaluating things. This makes a lot of sense. The Kabbalist agnostic connection, uh, you know, I don't think can really be denied. And it's kind of curious how there's several things that are like that. It's veiled Gnosticism. Tarot is another example, you know, or uh, sorry. Oh, I didn't uh, even Kabbalism. bring up, dude, the palace or pal, P-A-L, can also get you veil or val. Ah, nice. Nice. You know, P to B, B to V. For sure. Now you have the veil, which is a gate. Back yep. to the pal the pula gate word pola right. star the gate the veil. And I was gonna say, you know, the pole star, there's lots of beliefs where people think that, you know, the stairway to heaven leads to the northern sky. And then once you get to heaven, uh, you know, what do you see? The pearly gates. And so um just something I would throw out there. But this was really a great time, guys. So thanks for having me, of course.
Yeah, Lucas, you got any closers on us? Uh, no, I just enjoyed the show. I enjoyed the chat um, and enjoyed the, the content that you brought, Chance. So thanks for having me, and um, it was good talking to you guys. So that's about it. Yeah, man, I did my best to live up to that incredible sacred geometry presentation <laughs> you laid on us last time, bro. <laughs> that's good. Thanks. These four horsemen conversations get better and better, you guys. I love the working relationship we have in friendships and Mario, thank you for the kind words and Gabriel, as always, people should know, check him out at slick dissident on YouTube. LC King on Rockfin for Lucas and symbolic studies.com. will get you links to all of Mario's channels. He's on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. You can work with him one-on-one for tarot instruction or readings. And uh, he's just an incredible symbolism teacher. Lucas is an incredible uh, electric flat earth music, everything. He's making great beats. <laughs> and we all know nobody thinks the sees the world the way Gabriel does. And, you know, he's even up the juice level after being on a pineapple fast. <laughs> and you guys can catch more of me, of course, at the uh, interversepodcast.com. Probably all know that, but there's opportunity to work together for sound healing. You can meet me at Music and Sky Festival on October 13th to the 16th. Link to the sh- to that in the show notes. It's in SoCal, Kiwama Valley, uh, and big time. If you like the syncretism stuff and you want to pick up the keys so that you can see see through these things the way that I demonstrated here in this conversation, you know, I would be nowhere without the, the refinement of many ages worth of research on these topics that Dylan Sakoshio puts out in his Spirit World books helped me pick up the keys. And now I am, you know, finding the patterns for myself because this is way bigger than any one person could ever make every connection with. <laughs> it's so hyperdimensional. And I would love more of you guys to have the keys. I did the audiobook for book three of Spirit World. Not a bad place to start or go from the beginning. And there will be a book four, but that's a great way to support me and Dylan, who is an amazing author and deserves the support. And yeah. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Thanks everybody for hanging in. Like we had at least 50 people that were pretty much here from the beginning. I think actually more like 70 <laughs> County rock fan. I'm sorry, rock fan that I didn't engage much with you guys because of the PowerPoint, but I appreciate all of the awesome, awesome comments on both sides. And I'll go back and read them afterwards. Much love everybody. Night, night friends. All right. You guys need to announce anything before we go. You all good. I gave your plugs for you. All right. Peace out.